0: VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly.
1: Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning in to the program. It's Wednesday, May the 3rd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. We're looking forward to speaking with you this morning on a topic of your choosing. So if you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial 709 273 5211 or elsewhere, it's toll free long distance 1 590 VOCM, which is 86 26. So, it's one of those weird things when you live in this province, you learn about the different not only the weather phenomena, but the different types of fog. You know, not many people really refer to whether or not it's a specific type of fog that's hanging over your head and hanging over the ground and jeopardizing visibility as we travel or whatnot. So here's a couple. Radiation fog, which they is either ground or valley fog. Upslope fog, they refer to as the Cheyenne fog. Steam fog, which is Arctic sea smoke. Frontal fog, ice fog. And this morning, well, apparently what we're experiencing is advection fog. And what caused it? Who knows? All I know is fog gets under the skin after a while. Anywho, let's keep going. And pretty foggy conditions as I traveled into work this morning. And when there's some freezing drizzle, the temperatures were hovering around zero when I got in the rig this morning. Last thing I expected to see on the Ottering ring road was a motorcycle, but I did. And so it wasn't exactly going hell-bent for leather, but it passed me in the left lane, and then a few cars ahead of me, I assume because we're not quite used to back to the two-wheel season, and probably not expecting to see a motorcycle out in these types of conditions this morning, the person on uh, three or four cars ahead of me, driving a Toyota, went to pull out to pass whoever was in front of them, and here was the motorcycle. Pretty close. Now, it wasn't a deathly close call. But it was close enough for me to go, <coughs> you know, just, oh, my God, don't hit it. But the motorcycle was far enough to the left where I was able to just easily mm. avoid the car. But man, oh, man, it's motorcycle season. So keep an eye. And I suppose you'll keep an eye on the Leafs game last night. It was a pretty fast paced game, I have to say. But those pesky Panthers really did force the Leafs into a couple of serious mistakes. Consequently, even if the, uh, the Panthers were up by two, And they came back, the Leafs came back, but the Panthers uh, proceed to win 4-2 to take Game 1 at Maple Leaf Gardens. They don't call it Maple Leaf Gardens. What is it these days? Haven't been there. Is it the Rogers Center? No. What's the name? Scotiabank. Scotiabank Center. That's right, Dave. Corporations taking over those great named rinks. Anyway, Oilers tonight. That's going to be some series with Vegas. Mercer and the Devils tonight against Carolina. And away we go. Okay. There's probably, I don't know, the number of people in this province or across the country that are looking towards Saturday to watch the coronation of King Charles III. I'm not much interested in it. But like most, I might flick it on for a second. You know, whether it be the extremely old traditions and the pomp and circumstance and the pageantry and some of the jewels and the attendees and whatever might be piquing the interest of some, but not too many people are alive to actually vividly remember the last coronation, which was back in 1953, of course. So... I curiously, maybe it's because they heard me talking about it on the show, that I actually got an invite to a coronation party Saturday morning beginning at 5 a.m. Now, just politely declined because I'm not much interested in the first place, but 5 a.m. party to watch the proceedings. Now, in 1953, the coronation, the procession, what have you, took three hours. Apparently they've caught an hour out of it. There's going to be some changes to who's going to be part of it. For the first time, a member, a female member of the clergy and some other faiths will be represented in the proceedings. But the coronation of King Charles III and what it means for the future in the UK and what it means in this country, and we're happy to have a conversation, whether or not you're all in or all out on the monarchy this day and age. Curiously, it was on this date in 1979 that Margaret Thatcher became Britain's first female prime minister. And now speaking of the coronation, and this is a loose segue, but I'm doing it anyway. Coincidentally, Saturday evening, the day the king is cor- uh, the coronation takes place, it's the sport of kings, and the ultimate sport of kings, horse race takes place at Churchill Downs, just outside of Louisville, Kentucky, with this year's Kentucky Derby. So, sport of kings and the king coronation, yeah, okay. Was that a good link, Dave? <laughs> Currently, a horse named Forte is a three-to-one favorite for the Derby, and horse racing's kind of lost. Some of it's glamour. You know, there's still a ton of money bet on horse racing right around the world, but lots of conversations about the way the horses are treated and more and more of the doping of the horses, which really brought a black mark to American horse racing in particular in the last number of years. But anyway, there we go. Let's keep going. All right, I don't know how quickly they'll be racing up and down the East Coast Trail or the newly proposed trail network of 850 kilometers on the Great Northern Peninsula. It's going to be tagged the Great Coastal Trail. Some people take the entire summer and bite off segments of the East Coast Trail to just try to uh, cover the entire. I think it's two hundred thirty-six kilometers. So, so this is a massive trail network. Now, the argument is that it may indeed be good for tourists, and may certainly be good for locals who want to bite off some particularly beautiful parts of the Great Coastal Trail. But it is probably true that tourists will look for a variety of different things whether it be the culinary scene or the whales or the icebergs or the puffins or the rugged beauty or what have you but yes uh, or the uh, world UNESCO heritage sites I think they will also look at things like this, possibly. It doesn't come with a huge price tag. I don't know how long it's going to take to complete the entirety of the proposed 850 kilometers. First phase, 500 kilometers linking Parsons Pond, which is just outside, er, just outside of Gross Moor, linking that all the way to Lance Meadows National Historic Site. Price tag on it, about $21 million. Preliminary estimate guaranteed to go up. So we'll see if it ever comes to pass, and we'll see what the upside is. But if you're on the Great Northern Peninsula, so on a variety of these fronts, please let us know. The During the first phase, there's also going to be $18 million spent on building trails, bridges, other amenities, of course, campsites. $2.5 million spent on the salaries for three permanent and 80 seasonal employees between May and October. Fair enough. The other 350 kilometers of trails linking Lance and Meadows to Roddington, which is on the southeast, that... that does not have a price tag associated with it at this moment in time but an interesting move 850 kilometer trail network on the GNP If that interests you you know what to do I'm a poet I didn't know it I'm still interested in this more divided highway being added I'm like most of you I would think I do feel that additional layer of safety when I'm on a divided highway for the obvious reasons there's a ditch separating the oncoming traffic for me Again, it kind of comes out of nowhere. $153 million from the province at the same price coming from the federal government to add what would be somewhere in the neighborhood of 55 additional kilometers of divided highway. I like the sound of it, even if it's just for safety alone. Now, there is a issue with traffic congestion everywhere we go, but is this simply based on safety, or is there more to this? But anyway you want to bring it forward, uh, let's do exactly that. So we all know if you leave St. John's, the divided highway ends just entering Whitburn. They're going to extend that by about 40 kilometers all the way to Little Harbor East. There's another 15 kilometers of divided section between GFW and Bishop's Falls. And then there's the issue regarding port of basque When you leave port of basque there's going to be an additional 15 kilometers of passing lane. Hopefully, it's simply used to get past some of the slower moving transport truck traffic. But the big one in this neck of the woods, of course, would be the Team Guajou Highway. I mean, it was put, first put forward in 2006. And now there's not even a real firm price tag here for its completion. It's going to be around $50 million, but we have no idea when it's going to happen. So in 2006, there was just over 2 kilometers of the section that opened. And then in 2017 uh, or 18, another 4-kilometer section. So hopefully, we're told there's more details coming in the next few days. But for folks in and around here, it's been a long stretch watching them pick away at the Team Gushu Highway. But anyway, you want to talk about the highway investments and whether it be the, in addition to this, the unprecedented $225 million of highway work to be done uh, this year. Okay, what does that say? Know, speaking of Port of Basque, we've heard some stories coming from the community and, of course, surrounding communities that were battered by post-tropical storm Fiona. You know, a lot of the approvals have been put in place for folks to get uh, compensation from the province for rebuilding, Well, we've also heard, I think, just ridiculously poor stories about folks who have purposefully damaged their own property to get in on the action. So when and if that's true, and I've heard it from multiple people, I mean, that is a disgraceful way to behave. You know, people, not only one woman died, swept out to sea, but some 100 homes deemed uninhabitable. Homes actually literally swept out into the ocean, And people think, oh, this is a great opportunity for me to pull a fast one on the government and purposefully damage my home that was left unscathed at the hands or the teeth of Fiona. But if you want to bring forward any Fiona-related matters out on the southwest coast, let's do exactly that. And we had a conversation yesterday with Minister Jerry Byrne regarding Marine Atlantic. And remember, when Jerry Byrne was a parliamentarian, Marine Atlantic was one of his favorite topics. And we do need to see some adjustment made with how the federal government has structured our so-called constitutional highway. So the story as we all know it is the fuel surcharge, which I think historically is a very interesting topic, given how uh, Marine Atlantic has been allowed to add an additional fuel surcharge, uh, exceeding a certain threshold for expenditures on fuel, but it doesn't get earmarked for anything in particular. It just goes right into general revenue, and any uptick in cost to travel across the strait on that ferry will absolutely have some influence on people's decision as to whether or not they want to come here. So let's talk about that as well. Also, we heard from St. John's International Airport yesterday at their annual general meeting talking about some passenger volume. They say that when compared to pre-pandemic levels in 2019, last year, 2022, they're at some 74.1% of recovery. And apparently quite optimistic about what this particular season is going to bring. And we can only hope, and certainly if you're a tourism operator of any form and you want to chime in this morning let us know how your bookings are looking and what have you let's do that and also some of the issues that people had last year regarding access to a rental vehicle now toro the rental app came to town i actually know a couple of people who put their vehicle on it one is a teacher so they thought they could get away with not having a two vehicles in the family over the course of the summer they were quite pleased with how it worked and they pocketed a few bucks so in the tourism business if you are Interested in talking about what you're expecting or anticipating this summer? Let's do it. And also in the world of air travel, looks like WestJet has finalized its deal to buy Sunwing. They say it continues uh, to allow them to have a presence in eastern Canada. But of course, so they will be competitors of some variety, and Sunwing with their travel packages into the Caribbean and what have you. And they're also looking at a transatlantic flight, as a matter of fact, with St. John's International Airport. But this so-called operating as two separate entities, probably won't last all that long, right? We really do have a regional hub and the further concentration of air travel and control over air travel between the big two, Air Canada and WestJet. And I'll also throw in there the issue regarding the Passenger Bill of Rights that's been tabled in Ottawa. You know, it's always remarkable how so quick to pat themselves on the back for some of these moves, which are long overdue, Passenger Bill of Rights should be absolutely solely in the best interest of the passenger. So you can tell me all you like that the Canadian Transport Agency will now have the ability to fine an airline who breaches the code, some $250,000, and that number could be $7 trillion if you want because last year the fines afforded, or pardon me, the fines uh, to the airlines totaled up to zero. So tenfold increase, sure. And if you are uh, considering travel outside the country, give yourself some serious leeway if you need to uh, update your passport or to apply for your first passport. In years past, and there was a real problem even before the PSAC uh, strike, so they always said some 10 to 20 days. There are some priority given to folks who have imminent travel booked or what have you, but you should give yourself a full month before between applying and getting your passport just so you don't get caught watching from the outside. All right, lots of interesting reaction inside my email inbox and anticipated. Because sometimes when we look at job action, whether lockouts or strikes, there's going to be the thought of one side lost, or maybe there's a compromise and a win-win, mutually beneficial arrangement or agreement. So it doesn't matter to me what side you are on on this particular one, but I'm interested in taking your call on because there's a lot of different things still yet to be determined regarding remote work, seniority, which is going to be a real bugaboo, I would imagine. And then inside this, we know that the folks who work for Treasury Board are now back to work. But CRA remains out. So it's not just about whether or not you were able to speak with someone at CRA before the tax filing deadline, which was yesterday. But here's what some people are finding out the hard way. When it came to the very swift creation of the CERB, some $2,000 a month for people who had lost some hours or lost their job while the economy slowed and businesses potentially halted or stalled or slowed their operations, big numbers here to be considered. The Auditor General back in December reported that $4.6 billion in pandemic benefits went to folks who were actually ineligible recipients. Some actually did it unknowingly. Now, some people purposefully uh, took uh, advantage of the CERB, but here's what's happening now. The Feds had up to 36 months to look at whether or not the benefits were paid to eligible recipients. Now what's happening at CRA is they're withholding your tax return in part or in full. To recover some of that $4.6 billion, CRA reports that there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 775,000 people that have repaid the money so far, which tallies up to some $1.4 billion. They've also recovered almost $240 million through offsets, j- just like holding back your tax return. Here's what becomes a problem there were some people who, during the pandemic and getting the CERB, got in some cases an extra $2,000 outside what they were eligible for. They would contact Service Canada or CRA and say, look, I got this payment, and I'd like to pay it back right away so I don't get caught holding the bag because, of course, it was taxable income, it was incumbent on the recipient to stow aside the tax implications, and they were told, no, 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 you're okay. And now all of a sudden, all of those chickens are coming home to roost. So if you're anticipating a tax return and you're someone who has now been tagged as ineligible for the CERB CERB money, you may not get your tax return that you're anticipating but a lot of money's went out the door, you know, and we've said it many times. They brought forward these programs very quickly without the required oversight, and there was still lots of misinformation or inaccurate information or misleading information out there at the beginning. Some people, including the self-employed, thought, okay, I am il- eligible. Just to find out after the fact, you're not, and then began, be, uh, began the repayment season and schedule. So anyway, that might have an implication to a ton of Canadians. All right, let's keep going. So I think we've arrived very close to maybe the last fork or the end of the road regarding this season's snow crab. Okay, look, and I know it doesn't impact everyone, but it has uh, huge implications across the province. If the landed value of snow crab last year was around $886 million, it's going to be nowhere near this go-around, but of course the boats remain tied up. So it wasn't that long ago, so the season has been on for some three weeks. But just prior to that, there was the sense of collaboration, working together between the FFAW and the Association for Seafood Producers. And uh, not unexpectedly, that didn't last very long. So yesterday we heard from the ASP, and they're not going to budge on prices. They're not going to you know, do anything about going back to the price setting panel at this moment in time. But when you read between the lines, and also there was a tone of lecturing the union and their members about there's no way to behave, whether it be the... Uh, potential threats or the downside if you decide to break ranks from the now solidarity, which has ruled the roost so far, saying that that th- has no place in industry industry this moment in time. So kind of talking at the FFAW a little bit yesterday. And of course they talked back at the ASP with their business model and you know told when you can fish and how much you can fish on a certain day. But here's where it's quite easy to read between the lines. On April 28th, the ASP wrote the FFAW and said they commit for the next 21 days to not go back to the price-setting panel for any adjustment. It looks like the market continues to soften. So basically, what that means is, fish now for 220, or fish later with some potential jeopardy regarding quality for less. People that I know in the industry say that if we were going to be legitimate pricing uh, of snow crab today, that 220 might be as low as a buck 85, very, very quickly. So I wonder what that's gonna mean, not only in the leadership of the FFAW, but individual harvesters. Because some of them absolutely can make some money, nowhere near last year's money, but some money at 220. And so you can only imagine that in 21 days from the uh, 28th of April, there will be a reapplication for reflecting a softening market and less per pound. So I don't know what that's gonna mean, but if you're an individual harvester or Mr. Loader from the Association of Seafood Producers or anyone involved in any capacity, Let's talk about it because it still holds massive value, even if it's a third or possibly a little less when compared to last year. Okay, what's this up? Oh, yeah. So the opposition parties yesterday talking about infrastructure and procurement. Apparently when the government went out, put out a tender regarding uh, attracting a company to build a replacement for Her Majesty's Penitentiary. Initially there were three bidders. Two dropped out. Why? Don't know. So, of course, that just leaves one. Three minus two, one. So they'll refer to it as a liberal-friendly process. And will the government go back to tender? Look, it's always a risky piece of business and not necessarily great for any of us regarding whatever company and whatever price tag for any infrastructure or deals with government. When it's only one bidder, it makes it not only more complicated for the government, but I think it poses a certain risk for all of us. So it would be nice to know how and why two companies that initially bid dropped out of the fold here. But we're also talking about the affordability issue. So the government put forward, uh, they said they could afford up to some $325 million. Now the price tag, and they'll say inflation and what have you, is much closer to a half a billion dollars. So that kind of screams to me that it's time to go back to the well. Now the longer it drags on, doesn't necessarily mean the price is going to come back to earth any. So whether it be Mr. O'Driscoll, who is the opposition member who brought this number forward, he says he got it from industry sources. So we always have to be mindful of infrastructure and procurement, and yes, what has not gotten the attention in the recent past that it once got years ago is why and how and the benefits, short term and long term risk associated with a public private partnership. I'm really surprised even opposition parties aren't on that. Maybe they support it. Maybe that's something they think is a good thing. And yes, it will indeed reduce financial uh, contributions from the taxpaying public initially, but it's that 30 year window where people have questions. Profit's not a bad word but it's an interesting concept that we should be talking about. How are we doing out there, David? Let's get her going. All right, as of today, the Atlantic Physicians Registry has opened so doctors can travel freely amongst the four Atlantic Canadian provinces. The license will hold wherever. It could have a really appreciable impact on locums this summer. Hopefully some doctors that are working and living in other parts of Atlantic Canada see locum opportunity here in some of the most beautiful parts of the province where we need physicians, and this will make it a lot easier for them. That's good news. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM online, Follow us there. Our email address is at com. And oh yes, it's Mental Health Week. And I saw a couple of people uh, considering via social email or social uh, media talking about possibly calling the program this morning. Whether it be the delay in the final analysis of Towards Recovery, an important report, or anything else under the mental health envelope, let's talk about it today. We're taking emails. It's open opalanofeocm.com. My fav is when you join us live on the air, which you are going to do during this break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two and say good morning to Lisa Fay with the St. John Status of Women Council. Uh, Ron Clicker, pardon me. Good morning, Lisa. You're on the air.
2: Good morning. How are you?
1: Excellent. Thank you. How about yourself?
2: I'm doing all right, yeah, thanks.
1: So at the St. John's Status of Women Council, knowing that there's so many different tangents to mental health and access to mental health treatment, what are you doing?
2: Um, What we're doing is we're providing free counseling services to women and non-binary people in our community, and what we're finding is that that is a great need. People are on long wait lists for Eastern Health Counseling, um, and uh, and it saves lives for people to have someone to talk to.
1: So when I saw the news release, and it makes reference to free feminist counseling, what does that mean?
2: Uh, feminist counselling is really about um, it being person-centred, so people setting the goal for the counselling session. So you walk through the door, and it isn't that we sort of tell you what to do with your life, but you decide what the purpose of that day is, what you want to talk about, and you set goals for yourself to, to meet after that. So these are single sessions. It's one sit-down with a counsellor. You can come back again if you want. That's no problem. But you really set sort of the timeline. You set the rules. You set the goals. and you set the tone. for for the entire counseling session Uh, it's really owned by the people who walk through the doors.
1: So is this a uh, counseling opportunity that will take place over the course of a month or a week or is this a permanent feature?
2: Uh, It's a single session, so it's one hour. It's one hour of time that is completely focused on what people want in that. Um, We don't ask people very many questions. We want a name. They can give a fake one if they want. We don't ask for their MCP. Uh, We just want to make sure that people are feeling better when they walk out after that hour. Um, The counselling is offered on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, and some people come back over and over, and uh, some people um, are are there for their first and their last time. Uh, 58% of the people that walk through the door are first-time users of our counselling services
1: who's offering the counseling
2: um, we have at the moment we have three counselors who are working with us um, there there are people who also work as counselors in their personal life as well so they um, yeah they're all professional professionally trained counselors um, and they're just they're a bunch of great people who are good listeners and know how to help people come to some actions in their lives that can help them to build the life they want
1: One thing that we know when you look at the data is the relationship between mental health and gender-based violence. What do we know?
2: What we know is that a lot of people come in here and they tell us that when they're speaking about gender-based violence, when they're talking about intimate partner violence with um, some of the more institutional counseling services in, in our province, that people don't get it that people don't understand the, the trauma of gender-based violence, that people don't understand the trauma of intimate partner violence. Um, and that's what people are walking through our door for um, almost the most, to be honest, um, trying to figure out ways to, to build change in their lives. And it's very hard. A lot of people will tell, tell you just to leave, and it's never that easy. It's always a very big decision. Um, And we really need for institutional mental health care providers to to have more training on how to support people who are living in violent situations.
1: How does your program deal with things like the, what is a massive upside to continuous or continuity of care, the need to not have to tell or retell your story with different people time after time if you want to be a repeat visitor to these counseling sessions?
2: Um, Because it it is less about telling your story and it is more about setting plans for the future. So your story is less the important part of it and your goals are more the important part of it. Where do you want to be six months from now? And what are the steps you can take today to get there? Understanding what you're living with and, and how things work, um, that that's fair and, and that's definitely something that people share. Um, but what's really important is where you want to be as opposed to where you are now. Uh, at the same time, we have three counsellors, so um, a lot of them will see the same person more than once.
1: Uh, obviously any additional opportunity for people who need someone to talk to need some help is going to be beneficial to the community regardless what organization is offering do your counselors have the want or the ability to be able to refer someone on you know whether it be prioritizing someone because the story or their goal setting gives the counselor reason for concern regarding the immediacy the crisis that they might find themselves in
2: well, we do have a duty to report in certain situations, and most of those are around uh, when there are concerns about people um, harming themselves or others, and mm-hmm. those are the big areas where we have to report. Um, but, but, yeah, I, I, I still think that, that our counselors are, are able to work with most of the people who are here with the, without having, I think, the grand majority of the people without having to report it further on.
1: Lisa, I appreciate your time. Would you like to offer anything else this morning?
2: Um, I I guess I just want people to understand that when we opened this five years ago, we had 260 people walk through the door that first year. And this uh, past year, we had 528 people come through the door for counselling. People need mental health services in our community, and waiting on them is not an option. If people are going to stay alive, we have to be able to offer them that support immediately. And we're really happy to be able to do that, and we hope that there will be more options for people in our community in the future.
1: I appreciate the time this morning, Lisa. Thank you very much.
2: Thanks so much. Nice talking to you.
1: My pleasure. Take care. Take care. Bye. Right, bye-bye. So Lisa Fay, Executive Director of the St. John Status of Women Council. You know, it... It always pops right to the front of my brain. It's not that long ago. We were talking about one in five Canadians needed access to mental health care and treatment. Now the CMA is actually using one in four, which is really truly remarkable. And yes, certainly the impact of the pandemic has been unmistakable. So these conversations these opportunities if you have a certain uh, an organization or what have you that is offering some additional care and opportunities for people to speak to a counselor we're happy to talk about it here on the show before we get to the break let's go to line number one and say good morning to cynthia taylor from lane's retirement living good morning cynthia here on the air good morning patty how are you excellent today thanks how about you
3: great thank you
1: what's going on
3: well, Patty, I ju- actually, I just wanted to touch base with all your listeners. Um, at Lane's, we're enriching the lives of our seniors with Lane's Boutique, which we just recently opened. And it's a new journey for us, and all the residents there and the independent side and the personal care side have the opportunity to go shopping once a month with Inside Lane's Home and it's just a little clothing boutique we set up and we are going trying to go outreach right across to the other four lanes homes right across the island so, the reason for my call today is where we are doing the outreach. I'm hoping that your listeners who are listening would like to donate some clothes, maybe a partnership we can get with some local uh, businesses around town, and uh, just so we can spread this happiness right across to all of our homes.
1: And so, is this just for the residents, whether we have the personal care or independent living?
3: Absolutely. And we just wanted to have something to enrich your lives. We have so many wonderful amenities there, Patty. Um, You know, this just adds to the fluff there, and they love it. It's just like Christmas. When we done the grand opening in March, it was just like Christmas for them. And realizing they didn't have to pay for it, they just had to trade in clothing, was absolutely astonishing.
1: So they don't have to pay anything so it's no
3: it's a trading
1: oh it's a trade opportunity
3: yes they bring, they bring down it's just like if you go somewhere um, you have clothing that you want to donate you donate your clothing and they can go and take four or five items every time every month they just change out their clothes and it just gives them that little plus for themselves you know
1: so where did the initial uh, amount of clothes uh, first down the rack come from
3: Well, all the clothes on the rack came from um, a lot of our residents' families, um, our volunteers and some of the local businesses in our community. Uh, We have a lot of gently used clothes and we have a lot of clothes with uh, tags and everything on them. And uh, like I said, just the outreach there, having that, we set up 12 racks. And when the residents came down, oh, my goodness, the happiness in their little faces, because some of them can't get out and shop. And this just made a huge, huge difference in their life. So, this way they get the opportunity to go out with their friends and go shopping, have a cup of tea, a couple hours every month. They look so forward to it.
1: So I know you have, I believe it's five facilities across the province. What's the plans to expand? Because I know there's one in Botwood, another one in Carbonair. I can't remember the other two. After yeah, it's,
3: it's Botwood, Carbonair, Port Saunders, and Irish Town. Okay. So right now we just finished setting up hours here in Airport Heights community, and now I'm getting clothes come in so that we can outreach right to Carabiner, Botwood, Port Saunders, and Irish Town. And if any of your listeners live in that area and they would like to donate some clothes, age-appropriate, of course, um, we'd be delighted to, a- to take it from them.
1: Well, going shopping without your wallet sounds like a great, after- uh, great afternoon. I know, right? (laughs) Cynthia, appreciate the time. Good luck with it.
3: And thank you so much, Patty. And any of your listeners would like to donate, they can drop it off at Airport Heights Community um, up on Airport Heights Road to the lanes, and we'll make sure it gets across the island.
1: Thanks for this. Good luck.
3: Thank you, Patty. You're Have welcome. a wonderful day. You
1: too, Cynthia. Bye. Bye-bye. Cynthia Bye. Taylor, Lane's retirement. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking about some townie issues. Now, don't you go anywhere people living outside the overpass. You're up after that. Don't go away.
0: Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show.
1: Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the mayor of the city of St. John's. That's Danny Breen. Mayor Breen, you're on the air hey good morning patty welcome to the program so back in 2006 we all were thinking wow this team Gushu highway this is going to be awesome for the motoring uh, public here it's going to ease some traffic congestion here we are all these years later there's only been 2.3 kilometers followed by four kilometer section open in 2018 no real timelines associated when they're going to get back at it whether it's going to cost 50 million or otherwise do you know any more about it than we do nothing more than that um the uh,
4: the announcement that was made on on monday was that uh application will be made to the federal government for funding uh that will take some time um my understanding is that there was still some discussions around assembling the necessary land for it uh so right now uh, there is uh uh, there's there's a plan there to uh, uh to apply for the funding for it and once the funding's available uh, I assume that the uh, construction on the on the remainder would uh, would proceed The remainder constitutes how many kilometers I'm not sure exactly how many kilometers it is, but it it goes from topsail road to go out and hook up with the uh with the howlis the uh, goods uh, bypass road so uh so that's the connection it's it's an important uh, road for, for the cities uh, St. John's and Mount Pearl and, and certainly an important road, uh, road for people coming in from the southern
1: shore. No question, uh, you know, this one just popped into my head driving around the city of St. John's for anybody who either lives here or visits here it really is extremely congested. the uh, travelling public are really aggressive and sometimes reckless down in Portsmouth of St. Phillips they've actually uh, with permission from the provincial government allowed some of their municipal officers to do some work on that front, speeding distracted driving, passing the school buses. What did you make of that announcement? And is that possible in a city the size of St. John's?
4: Well, it, uh, my understanding is under the City of St. John's Act, which is different from the Municipalities Act that it's uh, it's not something that we can do. We have a prescriptive act that tells us the areas that we can operate in. Uh, so you would have to make a request to do that. I have some concerns about that uh, in terms of today. Uh, you know, when you're uh, when you're dealing with moving violations, putting in cars, um, you know, the, the RNC, I think, are best uh, best equipped to do that. In in Saint John's, uh, they administer the Highway Traffic Act, and they're trained to deal with any other issues that come from that traffic
1: stop. Yeah, because law enforcement will tell you, you know, two distinctly dangerous uh, responses would be for pulling over a vehicle, and we've seen what it looks like in this city and around the province with the numbers of weapons that have been seized, so you never know what you're getting yourself into, and these officers are not armed. I don't know what the level of training they will get to be making these traffic stops, but there we go. Uh, In addition, for the preparations for the 2025 Canada Summer Games, there has been a contract let for the work for the Track Field Turf Center of Excellence just outside the Aquarena. Do we have a timeline to ensure that this is not only open in time for the games, but an opportunity to train because that's also an important component—being familiar with your surroundings.
4: Yeah, so we did this on the design-build approach. So we had uh, bids from uh, from several proponents who came forward with their uh, with their proposal. Uh, the the this project was selected. The timeline is to be completed by the spring of. Uh, uh, 2025, so we completed somewhere around March or April. Um, so that's uh, that. That's what the uh, target is. The uh, we we can uh, we can get there and, and have it done. Um, but the work is starting uh, starting here immediately.
1: Now, it will be taken over and operated by Memorial University following the completion of the Games, which I believe is in the month of August of 2025. Is there any talk of a partnership so that, you know, because the city runs so many recreational programs, and as opposed to different athletic associations or minor sports associations trying to deal with directly with Memorial, is there a partnership that could be forged there to sort of streamline who has options and opportunities to use what should be a terrific facility?
4: Yeah, absolutely, Patty. So uh, right now, Memorial uh, and ourselves, we're working through uh, what that uh, uh, what that organization would look like and what that uh, operating uh, plan uh, would be. So that process is in the works, but certainly one of the things that's involved in this is access to the facility for the Eastern School District. We're using some of the Eastern School District land uh, behind uh, PwC. And uh, we've had a great uh, relationship with Memorial and the uh, and Eastern School District, as well as our other funding partners, provincial and federal government, on this. So I think we'll come up with something that will uh, serve the public very well and uh, also give... Uh, Give the Memorial Seahawks uh, a, a home for their uh, for their soccer teams and for their track and field
1: program. Yeah, covered stadiums with some thousand spectators under a covering for uh, outside this uh, pro soccer turf field, which sounds like a great a great thing. And of course, you're going to need to get people in and out of the area, not just during the games, but let's talk about public transport. I know that you know the city contributes to the operations at Metrobus, but the ongoing concern now is well, there's always going to be public transportation <laughs> concerns, but for GoBus. Now, my understanding yeah. is Metrobus has contracted out those services to a company in Ontario, and they say that some of the current process for booking is better than, for instance, getting a ride, booking a ride, thinking it's coming and it doesn't show up. So they've replaced that now with a wait list. So when you go ahead and book, you'll either be told yes or be told you're on a wait list. I'm not so sure why Metro Bus has contracted out that service. Can you fill in the blanks for us? Because it seems like something that should be under their authority.
4: Yeah, so uh, this is something that's that's managed by the St. John's Transportation Commission. Councillor Ellsworth has uh, been very involved in this, and it was uh, it, it was put out uh, originally uh, because of the uh, the type of uh, the type of service that was being offered. It was it was a very unique service, and we really had to build that capacity. So, uh, this just went out the tender, and the tender was re awarded. Uh, they're working with the app, they're working with how to make this better for, uh, uh, for, for the users. At the same time, we also had a funding announcement last week to expand our accessible buses. Uh, which also allows us to ex- to expand the routes on which we have accessible bu- buses are serving those routes. So uh, those things are all being worked through with the uh, with the St. John's Transportation
1: Commission, and
4: uh, and they're looking at the best way to deliver that service.
1: And when you talk about prioritizing who gets a ride, the app does not allow for people to say, for instance, I have a medical appointment versus I want to go to the 50-plus club and play cards. Now, not to say that's not important because it absolutely is in those people's lives. But it might be important to get down to a prioritizing uh, feature on the app because if we're if we need thirty drivers and currently only have twenty-four, and I wonder what that means for the recruitment effort. Because for a company in Ontario, they're not there to reach out and touch. So consequently, that you might not see the real-life impact for people who require this paratransit service that are either on a wait list or not getting an opportunity, or whatever the case may be. Last one. I know this is not the direct responsibility of any <coughs> municipality, but here in the city, whatever we. Uh, talk about uh, neighborhoods like Tessier Place and what have you, and down to Sebastian Court, that body that was found, a person was found seriously injured, consequently died, it's been ruled a homicide. You know, we've had some instances in the recent past where we're told to uh, stay in place, lock your doors and all the rest. What do you say to whether it be the province or law enforcement agencies or your citizens? Because it's becoming more common than it ever has in the past. The Crown Prosecutor's Office talks about a spike in violent crime. Uh, We've seen the numbers. Uh, They they were quite clear. So as a municipal leader, what do you say? Well, the first thing is is we uh, receive funding from the federal
4: government. Uh, It was announced a couple of months ago Uh, regarding building um, safe communities. So we brought together uh, all the different groups involved, the community organizations, the provincial government, RNC, uh, and had a one-day session in which we prepared a report from that to kind of chart a course of what role the municipalities and the the community can play in, in making our community safer. At the same time, uh, we've uh, done some work and are continuing to do work uh, with uh, downtown St. John's and the George Street Association on on addressing some of the needs in the downtown. And the RNC are fully engaged in that with us, as well as the MHAs. So we all recognize the the challenges that we're facing, and uh, the only way to to deal with those challenges is we all have to work together, uh, even though it's not... Uh, in the um, uh, in the jurisdiction of the city uh, it's our city and we want our residents to feel. Uh, safe uh, in their city so we're working very closely with those agencies to try to make some changes and put the resources
1: where we need to to achieve that last one this on housing so there's two separate announcements one for 750 affordable units the next one for 850 affordable units many of which will be in this region a lot of which will be in the city can you give us an update on the status of the construction where we are with some of these 1600 units I know the most recent 850 probably haven't uh, even bought a two by four yet but do we have a status update on the front 750.
4: Yeah, so I think you're referring to the projects with the Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation.
1: Yeah, and the federal uh, government's involvement as well. Yeah, yeah.
4: yeah. So uh, right now there was one, uh, there was one that was approved in in Pleasantville, a smaller one. There's another one planned uh, for the Pleasantville area uh, that's uh, uh, that's been talked about. So uh, Newfoundland and Labrador Housing and, and, uh, and the federal government are working very diligently on, on those to address the housing needs in our city. And uh, the housing need is is very acute uh, in all areas, in all, all types of housing, and
1: uh, also in emergency shelter as well. Have any of the units actually been built, completed?
4: Uh, I'm not sure about that. That'll be a question you'd have to ask for Newfoundland and Labrador
1: Housing. Appreciate the time this morning, Mayor Brain. Okay, thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. is Annie Breen, the mayor of the Cities and towns? Let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking mental health. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Christy. You're on the air.
5: Hey, Patty. How's it going?
1: Doing very well, thanks. How about you?
5: I'm all right. Um, I'm just calling today because, as you know, and have been very good at talking about on the show, it's Mental Health Week, and I think it's a good week for the government to release the final evaluation of Towards Recovery. Um, they made a promise on March 10th that it was going to come out in the next few weeks. And now it's May 3rd, and it is over a year since toward Recovery has been, quote-unquote, completed. And I just um, really want to encourage the government to please release it because I think we have to look at what's next and soon.
1: So I was a little confused by the news release back on the 10th of March, to be honest, because they talk about the completion of all 54 recommendations in this document, which is called Towards Recovery, the Mental Health and Addictions Action Plan. Do we know that all 54 recommendations are completed? And what do they mean by a final analysis?
5: Well that's why I think we need the final evaluation because when you look at the document, uh, there's fifty four recommendations and they I think they use the word substantially completed and we need, A breakdown of what they've done because they can say that all they want but how do we know like you said that it has been done and that's why the final evaluation is so important i do think they have done a lot of things on there but i think the public needs to look there and hold them accountable because you can't just say you've done them you have to show us how and on top of that i think the the next step is very important because there's also something called our path of resilience action plan That's three pages, very vague, and quite frankly, I don't think enough. And they have been referring to Towards Recovery for six years at this point, and it's time that they start referring to a new plan, and we need to see the old one first.
1: (laughs) Yeah, the five-year plan was uh, initially announced back in 2017. I know why government writes these releases the way they do. They'll talk about highlights, whether it be uh, the numbers of people that have visited doorways, or mobile mobile crisis prevention team visits, and all those types of things. What would also be helpful for the information for not only people in the system, but for the general public, to uh, for the government to allow themselves to acknowledge gaps in service, because then we can all do better to understand where we are, why we are where we in, in this particular moment. Whether it be referring back to their commitment of spend inside a healthcare budget, you know I think the target is nine percent, and we're somewhere around seven, which is extraordinarily low when we understand what's happening in this in the world. So if you were able to get in on the comms team and write to some of the gaps, as opposed to telling me 63 uh, fa- 6300 families have visited Strong Fast Families Institute, okay. that's great but where are we coming up short let's help paint that picture
5: yeah well that's that's the thing Uh, if i was on the communication team i would and i was doing the final evaluation i would say yes we've done this this and this but this is where we think we need to work on it because the world has completely changed since 2017 we aren't living in the same world mental health has been affected by the pandemic as well as the world itself and I think if they were to release the final evaluation they would have to talk about how different the world is now and acknowledge it and we know that things aren't going to be fixed overnight but one of the most frustrating things to me is when the government won't acknowledge that there may be shortfalls that maybe it was enough at that time but isn't now and so if I was to release something not only would I release a final evaluation, I would talk about the next steps. And I think our path of resilience, their new thing is what they're focused on, but that's not enough. And I'm concerned that that's going to be their major focus, which it should be a focus, but it's not enough.
1: Can you help us what's referred to inside that three page document called our path of resilience?
5: Uh, Yes, it's called our Path to Resilience. Um, It's a suicide prevention plan, which is absolutely very important. And I agree with the 12 things on it. You can go look it up on the government site because it's a plan to promote life and prevent suicide in Newfoundland. Um, And it's 12 points. So you can go look at them all and what they want to do. But as it says, it's mainly around um, suicide and I think that is very important as someone who lives with suicidal ideation. But mental health and mental wellness is so much more than that. That, you know, when you get to the point where you want to take your life by suicide, it becomes crisis and reactionary. And we want to focus on people where that hasn't even crossed their mind yet. They just want to focus on their mental wellness or, you know, um, on their mental illness as well.
1: Suicide rate in this province is 15.4 versus 11.4 suicide deaths per 100,000 people. It's the leading cause of death in First Nations and Inuit communities. Second leading cause of death among youth. So I wonder, and this is a great opportunity for them to make a formal dovetail between the Health Accord and this particular our path of resilience because the next mention inside that document is not just the numbers for context it's talking about the social determinants of health which not only have physical health implications but absolutely mental health implications so there's a opportunity here to I mean They try to do it optically, right? They build a new mental health and addictions treatment facility over by the Health Sciences Complex. That's fine, but we need it to be more in the world of action. Bricks and mortar, important in the world of healthcare delivery, but we've got to see the hand in glove of social determinants of health. Not just talk about interaction with the healthcare system, because people simply think that means going to St. Clair's, or going to the Health Sciences, or going to a hospital anywhere else in the province. It also has a distinct impact on mental health.
5: Oh, absolutely, and you know, like you said, I, I mean, I'm thrilled we're getting a new mental health facility, but we have to have a plan of who's going to staff it. What happened in Cornerbrook with that memo that was sent out was absolutely awful, and I think shows the danger of if you have a building, but you don't have the staff, because it was such a harmful message, and it really showed how desperate we are for more mental health professionals, so I... There needs to be more action. I know that's just buzzwords at this point, but um, speaking of the suicide rates in Labrador, I do want to give a huge shout out to Leela Evans. I thought her impassioned speech in the House of Assembly was so good. Um, I think she did a really good job at calling them out. and. In Labrador, when she talked about how much higher the rates of suicide are for women, something that really struck me is that usually they're a lot higher for men. Um, That is a huge concern. Usually, when you look at the stats, men um, die by suicide a lot more, even though women attempt just as many times. And I think we need to be asking, why is it so much higher for women? And analyzing that, because that is very, very abnormal.
1: For men, the thought is that there's a hesitancy amongst the male population to get help. You know, it's that unbelievably unhelpful bravado or machismo which keeps people from talking to their friends or talking to their family or seeking out professional help which absolutely leads to some of those numbers. Inside suicide prevention, it's a really inexact science about how certain approaches work. Some of it feels like really societal conversations. and. You know, connectedness and those types of things, which makes it hard to put in pragmatic policy. Because if we don't know, well, here's a strategy proven to work, let's just implement it, it becomes much more complicated than that. Your suggestion to the government, whether it be in this document or otherwise, about how we talk about and how we move forward on this front. Because there is isn't a hard and fast strategy that has been proven to work.
5: Sorry, I missed the last sentence. What did you say?
1: There hasn't been like, you know, we can talk about a policy for uh, day surgery for hip and knee. And we can look at the data oh, yes. and say that it works. Yeah. But in, in suicide prevention, there isn't a strategy that anyone can say, well, this is the way to do it. And everyone just mimic this and we're going to be fine. Because it's much more about society and connectedness and social determinants of health and all these things which are just a little bit more nuanced and complicated than simply uh, get my knee done home the next day or home that day.
5: Oh, absolutely. And and I agree with you, but I also think that that can be used as an excuse about how complicated it is. And I, don't, I really don't want to see the government say, well, it is really complicated and we don't, it's not as simple as, you know, a hip and knee surgery. Um, I, I think that they still have to focus on it and they do, I think there are some things that do work and they have to focus on those and continue doing the research about what will help. We know that the social determinants of health um, impact suicide rates. I mean, why wouldn't they focus more on that? And I... I think there's, there's two things. I think there's mental illness and then there's the social determinants of health. And they need to look at both because they're two separate things, in my opinion. But social, if you're not doing well in your social, like economically, etc., then that affects your mental wellness and it can exasperate your mental illness.
1: Yeah, and the purpose behind my question, just for clarity, was to hopefully paint a picture which eliminates or reduce the opportunity for government to use it as an excuse. It's just so if we add a few things to the conversation that maybe they can be used as questions whether it be by opposition members or members of the media so that the government can't say well it's too complicated to really give you a firm answer because we need something we need guidance we need answers we need direction here uh christy Um, anything else this morning
5: Well, I think you just made a really good point. This is where the opposition, the NDP and the PCs and and you and every other media outlet can be such a big part of the change because, you know, individuals can squeak all they want. I can do that. But you all have the platforms. And I will say, Patty, that you have used yours over and over again. I've told you I think you're a major mental health resource in Newfoundland and Labrador. And thank you because... I don't think you've ever said, this is too complicated to tackle. You have done it over and over on this show. So thank you for that.
1: And we appreciate your, your advocacy, Christy. Okay. Always nice to speak with you. Thanks for your time.
5: Thank you, Patty. Have a great day.
1: You too. Take care.
5: Okay, bye-bye. Bye.
1: She's done a lot of work, boy. I tell you what. Okay, uh, let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, of course, to the topic, it doesn't matter if I brought it up, if you've heard anyone mention it. If you want to bring it forward, do exactly that right after this news.
0: Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the show. There's been a partnership struck between Bell Let's Talk, which many people focus in on one day a year. The Young Adult Cancer Canada, of course, Jeff Eaton and his group, talking about a, a public screening of a new documentary called Setting His Own Limits. Is following along Young Adult Cancer uh patient, Mike Dahl. He's living with metastatic thyroid cancer and Mike joins us live on line number two. Good morning, Mike. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty Daly. How are you this morning? Couldn't be better. Thanks for asking. How are you doing?
6: Well, first off, uh, I mean traditionally, I have to say a long-time listener. i say about a fourth-time caller, but uh, I'm great, man. I'm I've been nervous as anything, scared the last two years, and uh, I'm happy to say that today I'm very happy nervous. It's uh, it's a really, really, really powerful day to uh, finally be pressing the play button on our wonderful documentary we've been working on for the last uh, better part of two years following my cancer journey, man.
1: And working with uh, Upsky Down Films, which of course uh, Roger Maunder and the editor Brad Tuck on this one, how did the documentary come to pass? Because not everybody wants to tell their story in this fashion.
6: You know, it's it's a great question. I So, I was diagnosed with uh, metastatic thyroid cancer on April 29th at 9.50 in the morning, and my wife was 33 weeks pregnant at the time. Uh, flash forward a couple of weeks, and I had my first cancer surgery on a Monday, and uh, our beautiful second baby, uh, little Darcy, was born that uh, Saturday night. I wasn't 72 hours out of hospital myself. Um, it's been an absolute circus since, and I was running the... I've been expressing myself through exercise. Uh, that's how I've been coping with uh, this entire journey. And that's what's helping my mental and physical health and just keeping me occupied. And that's how that's how I deal with this. And I talked to Mr. Jeff Eaton at Young Adult Cancer, who I'd met through, you know, local uh, sports scene in previous years. Anyway... Uh, about how I wanted to run the Kate to Cabot 2021 and dedicate my efforts and bring attention and bring awareness of, you know, fighting back my cancer diagnosis through through exercise and running this race. And all of a sudden, he came back to me and said, why don't we turn the camera on? Why don't we turn this into a documentary? Talk to my wife about it. Talk to my family about it. And when one goes, we all go. We uh, agreed to this on the conditions that it's not a highlight reel it's going to follow the honest story it's going to take the ups and the downs nothing's out of bounds and we're going to tell the whole real story uh i hate everything about this because i obviously wish i wasn't in these shoes but i'm very fortunate that i've been able to seek treatments and see the right people and have access to the medicines and access to the facilities and you know the radiation uh, the radioactive therapies and all of it man just to to be able to you know get myself back in the driver's seat and control the controllables you know what I mean?
1: I do and I've worked with Jeff many times over the years and of course he pointed out the origins of uh, Young Adult Cancer Canada is that there were some cancer support programs uh, available for even in pediatrics and for seniors or older adults but for young adults not so much and when a cancer diagnosis hits when you're 33 and you're possibly just getting into your professional career just starting your family like you were at the time it just knocks you so far off the rails without yak there would probably be a lot of overwhelmed young adults across the country with nowhere to turn so what do you want people to take away here is it simply to see the experience and how it impacts the life of a young adult uh, cancer patient or is there more to it that you want people to take away
6: well i mean it's i want people to just come and put their eyeballs on it and and to say that first off the the support And the response to this, the reason that you're only hearing about this today, Patty, and our our debut show is tonight, Mm -hmm. this sold out before we even had the opportunity to promote it. Uh, Our whole ad campaign, our whole everything on every imaginable platform, billboards, all of it. We didn't even get to launch any of it because it sold out before we even got to do this. The response to this has been absolutely insane. Um, So... I I just can't wait to just get it out there and get eyeballs on it. Like I said, it's been an incredible journey and it's affected a lot more than just me. Um, You know, it's affected my wife, my parents, my family, Uh, my wife and I are both registered nurses, coincidentally working in the mental health program, both of us. Um, You know, it's, it's affected every walk of our life. And the only people that aren't affected are our beautiful son, Damon, who's four and our beautiful daughter Darcy who's about to turn two, because they're just so beautifully unaware and, more interested in in Peppa Pig and Monster Trucks right now, you know what I mean. So, it's followed me and my family and our whole team through this whole journey, and you know I uh, raised a lot of awareness because uh, I, you know, have certainly done two local Cape to Cabot races uh, in dedication and support of this uh, cause, and also like took like I was in between cancer treatments last year, um, when you know in talking with my specialist, she very much realized that exercise and races and, you know, this type of dealing with the situation was how I best dealt with this situation. So she challenged me and said, you know, what race are you signing up for next? So I went and uh, took on uh, the full distance Ironman at Mont-Tremblant last summer in between cancer treatments, because I was just, I needed something to physically and, occu- physically and mentally occupy myself before my next treatment. So, you know, I did the whole thing, full-distance Ironman last year at Mont-Tremblant, which is a 3.9-kilometer swim, 180-kilometer bike ride, and then ran a full uh, marathon, and then hugged my family and kissed my kids at the end. And It was one of the most powerful, special days of my life. Back last September, just after the race, uh, I was told I was cancer-free. And then the party was on. Only for 44 hours later, I was told that my results were read to me wrong, and that my cancer was very much alive and spreading. The fact that we've had a camera on while this is happening is just ridiculous because the the ups and downs and the washing machine of life that I've been through in the last two years has just been—you couldn't write it. And the fact that we've had a camera following this has just been—it's going to be a heck of a story to tell. And you know, we've got the uh, music of my musical hero, Juno Award winner uh, Joel Plaskett, all over the uh, over the film and. Like I said, it's the wonderful Roger Monder at Up Sky Down Films who brought this vision onto the screen. And uh, Brad Tuck uh, certainly put in the mastering and the final uh, hugs and kisses on the uh, project to get it to the screen. I can't wait to hit the play button on this thing, man. It's going to be an awesome, awesome, awesome day. And all we can try to do is turn this nightmare into something more positive. I
1: also should mention it's also in partnership with the NLFTC, the Newfoundland Labrador Film Development Corporation, and my buddy Mark Sexton, who sits as the chair. So the doors open at the Center up on Signal Hill this evening at 6.30, screening at 7. It all should wrap up around 9 o'clock. Uh, last one for you, Mike. So you talked about the impact on your wife and your parents and maybe some of your circle of friends and what have you. But personally, has this been good, helpful, destructive? Or how do you characterize what it's meant to you and how it's made you feel?
6: I would tell you that this has brought out the physical worst in me. You know, the obviously the, the constant blood work, scans, treatments, multiple surgeries, multiple rounds of radioactive treatment, the isolations. But it's brought out the mental best um, in me as well. It's made me dig deeper than I thought possible, and it's easy when there's no options. It's just time for action. Uh, It's certainly forced me to be comfortable being uncomfortable, and to grow through the pain. It's been a very, very challenging two years, but to be able to harness all these emotions, and to talk about it, and to capture it onto a film now, and put it out for as many eyeballs to see, I can't wait to uh, share it. I'm very, very nervously excited, but, you know, I'm very, very... Sure that we wouldn't be doing this if we didn't firmly, passionately believe in the project and the message. Uh, and just again, a big thank you to Young Adult Cancer Canada uh, for the fact that I have—I'm uh, married to the woman of my dreams. I have wonderful friends. I have you know good people in my life. Wonderful parents. And yes, still in all this, I can feel so isolated and alone. And, and the guilt of the stress that I've caused myself and my family, and all this. And Young Adult Cancer Canada has created a. Community for people that are going through similar situations and um, to lean on and and to connect with both in person, virtually. And, you know, no one wants to be there because obviously you don't want to be dealt this hand, but it certainly gives people a shoulder to lean on and help each other through. You know, on the heels of this also Saturday is the uh, Shave for the Brave uh, at the Avalon Mall, 12 to 1. And, you know, there's just so much going on, you know. Uh, There's 22 young adults diagnosed with cancer in every day and i i hate to say that my number got called on april 29th two years ago but i'm working with it i've chosen to talk about it i've chosen to speak up and i've chose to turn this around and make something more positive come from it i wish i wasn't in this situation but we're long past that so i've i've chosen to uh flip the script and turn this into something uh, far more positive that myself my family and my kids can certainly look back on and be proud of
1: Good on you for taking it on, Mike. I can only imagine what it meant to you and everyone else around you. So hopefully it's going to be helpful. I'm sure it'll be exactly that. I know the screening is tonight, and you sold it out before it was a chance to promote. Any plans to take it outside of the city? Because young adults being diagnosed with cancer and the impact on their family and friends is in every nook and cranny of the province and country.
6: Sadly, that is the reality of it. And, I mean, no matter what someone's lifestyle, I've been a competitive amateur athlete my whole life. I've never smoked a cigarette, never done a drug, no family history. I've no business being here. This can truly just come knocking on the door when – it has no business doing that. Uh, so, you know, we're going to be launching it through the uh, – we're doing some live events because we just want to be able – to man, everyone's been locked up in the house for the last three years. So, you know, to be able to sit and and meet new people and reconnect with people I haven't seen in a while still, is the excitement of that has not worn off yet, at least for me. And so, you know, it's going to be an awesome live event tonight at the Emira Innovation Exchange. But certainly moving forward – uh, we're going to be doing more live events, and we'll certainly promote those and, and, and be in contact. But also, this is going to be available online and on TV through the Bell Network, through 51 uh, TV and uh, Bell Online.
1: Thanks for making time this morning, Mike. Uh, Enjoy tonight. Uh, Hopefully that's the exact reaction that you and everyone else that's there at the AmeriCenter this evening. Doors open 6.30 once again. Screening begins at 7. And you say with other live events, if there's something you think we can help with to help promote, please just give us a shout.
6: That means a lot. And just I'm very thankful for the opportunity. Thank you for... uh let me just uh, excitedly yell at everybody who's listening this morning and just thank you very much, Patty. I'm I'm very proud and very excited. Very nervous, but very excited to share this with uh, folks all over. I can't wait to get this going. Let's go. Have a great day, Patty Daly.
1: You do, Mike. Thanks for your time, buddy.
6: All right, guys. Have a great day. Bye. You too.
1: Bye-bye. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, uh, Let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, plenty of time for you and, of course, We want to talk about what you want to talk about. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Judy Peddle. You're on the air. Hello,
7: Paddy. Hello there. I'm just calling in to update you on the situation at the Corpus Christi, St. Vincent, Nepal Food Bank.
1: Yes, please. So that people know what we're talking about. When the property was sold, and that was for compensation for the victims at Mount Cashel, that meant that the folks at St. Vincent de Paul were losing their space, and it was a space That's that they had for free. And now, consequently, are you still looking? Have, do you have any good news for us, or what's happening?
7: No, no good news. We've we've exhausted all of our uh, places that we've checked out that might be suitable, and that some. Uh, as we find the place, it's already gone, and we've gone through the government. We've gone through the city. Nobody seems to be able to come up with something in this area that can help us out. And so, so oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So, unfortunately, um, we have to vacate that property at May by May 31st. Which means if we don't get somewhere to move to, we have to close that food bank, and that's going to be devastating to this area.
1: No doubt, so it would be ideal to get some space close by where you're operating at a Corpus Christi and of course you're getting it for free, what's the square footage you need to sort of replicate what you currently have? Uh,
7: anywhere from a thousand to fifteen
1: hundred. And you say yes. when you've gone to see a space, uh, sooner than later the space is gone, does that mean that the person who's the commercial property owner all of a sudden had a paying tenant come up or what has ha- been happening? Um,
7: We had one place that we were thinking about, and we had gotten—it was for rent, so we had gotten the rent down to where we thought we might be able to afford it. But before we got a chance to really, you know, decide on taking it, I guess he got an offer with the higher rent and took it. And we've looked at a few other places, and, you know, everything is rental, and we need mostly open space for to put like shelving and stuff like that for for storing food and that so we've we've been to a few places but we we haven't been able to find anything
1: so do you own the racking or the shelving or is that something that corporate Christie owned
7: well the, the the shelving and everything is in the building that we we've operated at. we've operated in that building for over 23 years uh We had to leave that because it's on the property. So we're leaving with, you know, a building that we didn't pay any rent on. And it was all... It was all... um, It was built, I guess, for St. in Nepal, years ago, when we had a lot of snow. And the original building they were using for a food bank collapsed under the weight of the snow, and this building was built. So... We've always we've only been the only ones that have ever operated out of that building, and we paid all the maintenance to keep it going. But unfortunately, it belongs to the church because it's on the property. We never had anything that gave us the right to the have to the property.
1: Well. If and when you're lucky enough, and hopefully you do find some space, get back in touch with us so we can help try to figure out the shelving and racking that you're going to need. I might have a couple of contacts in that world. Uh, Judy, how far afield can you go, do you think, to adequately serve the folks who Reliance in Vincent de from Corpus Christi?
7: Uh, well, we've looked even to, down to Water Street West. Okay. We've you know kind of gone to everything that, that's available in this area to, you know, Topsail Road before you hit Dunn's Road. So kind of like that, that space from Water Street West to Dunn's Road, we've been looking at anything that's available, but of course we haven't found anything that that's suitable and there's very little that's available to us. We had hoped that some of the um, older buildings housing down by the Waterford w- would be available, but we're told now that that's not gonna be available either. They had a few houses down there that would have been perfectly suitable to keep us in the area.
1: Well, if anybody has any ideas or has some space between 1,000 and 1,500 square feet, that can... How's the St. Vincent de Paul Food Bank? Because we know the unfortunate reality is, especially through the pandemic, more and more people are coming through the doors, more and more families coming through the doors looking for assistance. So let's see, as the listening public, what we can't do for Judy Peddle and her team at St. Vincent de Paul. I appreciate the time. You want people simply to contact you directly, Judy, if they have any good news to share? Oh,
7: yeah. Yeah, they absolutely can. I can give you a number if you want to take it offline.
1: Okay, I'll put you on hold. to Give it to Dave.
7: Okay, thank you.
1: Thank you, Judy. Good luck. Boy, oh, boy. Okay, let's keep going. Line number four. Sharon, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning.
8: I would like to take this time to toss a million bouquets to Mike Daw. Um, I worked with Mike Daw. I had the privilege, not very often, but he was a phenomenal person. Um, and wherever he went, he brought sunshine.
1: He certainly has the charisma and the energy, and he's not only was, but he is a terrific guy.
8: He is, no doubt. I've watched him since his unfortunate diagnosis. But to hear him speak and to hear him uh, putting out the idea of children and young people's cancer is another another bouquet um how can you ever forget uh terry fox well terry fox and mike Daw in my books are heroes um and i'm sure anyone who has worked with mike in the past at the waterford and certainly back up my story
1: no doubt they would. Uh, I'd be curious to see it one of these days. Apparently, I'm going to be able to see it online. I have, I'm a Bell customer, so I can avail of it on 5TV1, which I will mm. at some point. And, you know, everyone working in that sector, whether it be Jeff Eaton or Sherry Del Rizzo or anyone else at Yak, and, of course, Mike and his contribution here, it's going to be important. And I, I really I know for sure that he'll be very appreciative of this bouquet.
8: Oh, my dear, he's a marvelous young man with a marvelous and a wonderful little family. Also, I'd like to touch on psychiatry for a moment. Okay. And this is, I'm going to throw a brick this time. (laughs) And that is, if you've ever had the um, reason to go into the health science and look for the psychiatry unit... They talk about the stigma attached to psychiatry. The only place you will see psychiatric unit is if you find your way through all the arrows directing to the south elevator and you go down to the basement floor, you will see psychiatric unit. That bothers me immensely. The other way is to the morgue. Now, whoever is at the the helm, they need a little wrap on their fingers.
1: So I always thought the psychiatry ward was up on the third floor. Absolutely
8: not, Patty. Oh. It is down in the basement. You turn right to where all the kitchen and trays are, and that is where you will find the psychiatric unit. And the other way around that is the morgue. What does that tell you, Patty? So we have to start and put up those psychiatric unit signs. There's nothing wrong with psychiatric illness. Of course not. I've always maintained if you're a diabetic, you have to you have to manage it. And you manage that sometimes by one to one with people who know what diabetes is all about, plus their medication, and the same goes for psychiatry.
1: It's an unfortunate uh, placement inside the facility. Hopefully, Isn't we'll see. Isn't that sad? <clears throat> yeah, it's it's odd. Yep. It's odd. It's sad,
8: and it's hidden away. So there's your stigma at the helm. And uh, the the world Mental Health Week. You know, it should start the ball rolling. And I hope people in the healthcare uh, echelon will take this seriously.
1: Well, hopefully, the new facility isn't just uh, modern-day bricks and mortar. Hopefully, it also brings upon pragmatic, positive change in the delivery of mental health services. Sharon, I really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for the call.
8: Okay, and again to Mike, kudos to Mike.
1: 100%. God bless. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Just before we get to the break, and of course, the scammers are relentless. There is one floating around now about the grocery rebate, which is just the GST bump, the one-timer that's going to come out, we think, on the 5th of July. So it looks pretty real. If you get a text or an email... What looks like it's come from CRA about the grocery rebate, it is a scam. And this is a message coming from the Canada Revenue Agency. So it says, to receive your payment, click here to, uh, to complete a form. Don't do it. CRA doesn't do that stuff. You are If you're eligible because of your tax filings, that's all you need to do. No further application or forms to fill out to get this GST or grocery rebate bump. It's not real. Don't do it. If you file your taxes and you are eligible for GST, you'll get it. So please don't fall for that one. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, time for you. Don't go away.
0: You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Caller, you're on the air. Hello? Hello. Hi.
9: Is this me you're talking to?
1: Yes, ma'am. You're on the air. Go right ahead. Okay.
9: Um, Okay. um, I'm calling because I'm trying to see my granddaughter. And I'm nine years at this now, trying to get a visit, even to see what she looks like. And I can't get access to her because there's no law in Newfoundland that gives grandparents any access to their grandchildren. There's only one place in Canada, and that's B.C. I was wondering if you have any other callers that are in a similar predicament that I'm in that maybe can give me some advice or can help me with it.
1: Well, I have indeed uh, exchanged emails with a grandmother and grandfather that are in the exact same boat. At that point, they asked me to keep it confidential. But what I can do for you is I will try to find that email. This is from quite a long time ago now, but I can try to find that email and ask them if they're willing to speak with you offline.:
9: Oh God yes.
1: Okay, I'll ask them because I remember quite clearly they said they didn't want this to be part of the public conversation. They were looking to see if I could point them in the right direction to get any help. And I looked around, and there really isn't any legal recourse. And I don't want to get too personal with uh, asking you any questions, but why is it that you've been unable to see your granddaughter? Is there anything in particular happening here?
9: My son-in-law, he lived with me for nine months free. The baby was born in my home that she was brought to my home from the hospital. He didn't have to pay a dime, not a dime. And I had a fight with uh, an argument with my other daughter. had nothing to do with him, well, nor his wife, my, my oldest. It had to do with my baby. And he got a hold of it, and told me that I had a choice. Um, If I moved my my youngest daughter back home with her her fiancé, then he was taking the baby and leaving. So I said, "Okay, can I see the baby? Because he was giving me a choice between his baby and mine. And quite frankly, mine is more important. So, from then on, it was, you are never seeing her again. Go back to the mental where you came from, uh, you'll never, you're never going to see her. And he was right. I have a lawyer around 18 or 9 years trying to see her. <laughs> Even if they put her outside the store and just let me look at her. But they won't.
1: Does the granddaughter know that you were around and looking to see her, or does she possibly think that Nanny abandoned me?
9: Oh, I think she thinks I'm dead.
1: Oh, for God's sake. <sighs> Do you send things like birthday cards and Christmas cards and stuff to her? Everything comes back.
9: Everything comes back. I'm after, my lawyer is after asking them if I could take around the Disney cruise. If I could take her to Disneyland, if I could take her to Montreal, Toronto, PEI, they just keeps returning the mail.
1: And what about your daughter? Where is she in all this? She, whatever he says, goes.
9: Whatever he says, goes. Are
1: you,
9: and are
1: you worried about your daughter or your granddaughter?
9: I'm not worried about my daughter, I'm worried about my granddaughter. What is it that I can't see what's happening?
1: It seems like it's particularly cruel.
9: It's very cruel. You will never understand how cruel it is to put me in the hospital when I had a check.
1: Because as a parent, I daydream about the day when I might have grandchildren and never Um, in those dreams have they turned into a nightmare of not being able to see that grandchild so I can only imagine the pain that this has caused you and it seems not only cruel but inhuman for people on the other end to acknowledge and understand that you must be feeling this way and still unwilling all these years later to simply make very minor accommodations so you can simply see the child, whether it be a supervised visit in the porch or on the front lawn or it's wherever. What? It's just... its This is if really I could, an infuriating if story. I, if
9: Pardon? I could see her across the street, anything at all for nine years and nothing, nothing. And there's no, I can't get any further away with it. And this morning I I listened and I heard the OCN and I said, I wonder if I tried this.
1: Well, I wish I could point you in some direction to help you, but I absolutely, during the next newscast or next break, try to find that email. I think I can come up with a search word that might help me find it, and if they're willing and able to talk with you, I will pass along. I'll call you back personally and give you the uh, contact information, so I'll try to find that. I probably can. But in addition to that, and I don't want to suggest you do anything that will put you in a, an awkward spot or a bad spot or whatever the right word is, but like, have you ever tried to just see her come out of school? Or I don't know where she is. Are they, are, are you in the same town or in the same city?
9: Apparently, there was there in St. John's because okay. he's a journalist
10: for the oh,
1: Okay, let's uh, keep some of that personal stuff out of there because I'm not sure what to do with that. Um, the dad- the reason why I'm, I'm thinking that they're in the city
9: that's, that's, yep. so I, I didn't mean to divulge that that just
1: okay, okay. and uh, we'll we'll scrub that for the replay for later on just for your benefit and let okay. me try to find that email if I can do anything at all here I will
9: thank you very much I really appreciate me you don't know how much
1: you take good care of yourself
9: Thank you very much.
1: Okay. All right. Bye-bye. You know, what's wrong with people? I'm not in the middle of that family. I don't know the ins and the outs and the ups and the downs and every root cause for this standoff. But, you know, when the reference is that time heals all wounds, Isn't it just reasonable, from the outside looking in, without every tidbit of information, to think that seven years is enough time to have passed so that people can see a little bit clearer and make just the slightest or the most minor accommodations for the sake of a grandparent? You know, add into the fact that I think she mentioned that the child was born while they lived there, rent-free, and some other conflict inside the family for this to be the end result? What is going on? Uh, Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Keith. You're on the air.
11: Yes, Patty. I'd like to um, throw a bouquet to the uh, psychiatric department that's found in the basement of the health sciences complex. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, There was a call around earlier and she was passing uh, what I consider to be uh, false judgment on this department. Uh, Three years ago, when I was in trouble, uh, uh, I ended up on the basement floor of the Health Sciences Complex and those people in there saved my life. I would not be talking to you right now if the group of professionals the nurses the psychologists the psychiatrists uh, on that basement floor uh, were not there they they saved my life so the fact that someone could say i'd like to throw a brick uh, instead of a bouquet at these people these professionals these people that save lives every day i find it a little bit um, disturbing
1: well i I think her comments i can't speak for her is that it's it's proximity to the morgue and the fact that it's in the basement and uh, you know someone also painted a picture for me that even the opportunity for fresh air is a not the open air space that you think would be conducive to good mental health now i haven't been there i don't know i thought i recalled when i was a teenager maybe eighteen or nineteen years old. One of my buddies needed some help and I was pretty sure I remember visiting him on the third floor, but apparently this things have changed since all those years ago. So yeah. you know, and I don't think it's a condemnation of people working inside that unit because obviously they're doing extraordinarily important work. So Keith, how long ago was this did you say?
11: This was two and a half years ago. I uh I found myself in a in a in a bad place and I was gonna harm myself and I, uh, my wife called the helpline and I was, a van showed up with a uh, plainclothes there, a CMP officer and a social worker and we spoke and they took me to the uh, Waterford right there and then and at the Waterford I was assessed and then I was brought over to uh, the health sciences where I received the best healthcare, the- most compassionate people, the utmost professionals, um, and I, I, I take extreme exception to anybody uh, painting them in any sort of dark lights, regardless of what floor you're on. Patty, I was in a in such a bad place. I could have been on the 10th floor, the floor of the hospital that you're at when you're in a mental crisis means nothing. It's the people that help you. That's what means everything. And they saved my life.
1: How old were you at the time, Keith?
11: I was 52.
1: Again, I'm always... I struggle with... Figuring out what I should ask and not ask, and of course, I always give people. You can opinion. ask me.
11: You you can ask me anything, Patty.
1: Okay, great. Because I, I mean, I don't want to dig into your private life. What led you to a place? Was this a long, gradual spiral, or did something specific happen in your life where you find yourself in this crisis? I had been
11: diagnosed uh, about 20 years previous to this uh, crisis uh, with depression and OCD, and. Um, The trigger, I guess you could say, was when COVID came, all my coping mechanisms were taken away from me. Uh, I couldn't uh, go to the gym anymore. I couldn't walk in the park. Uh, I couldn't go out for coffee with friends. I lost my job. Um, Pretty much everything collapsed on top of me, uh, with the exception of my wife, who uh, saw that I was in trouble. And knew that I was, uh, or had an inkling that I was going to harm myself, and uh, she reached out. And I hear a lot of the, of the time about mental health, how the how the system's broken, and how it needs to be improved. And I agree, it does need to be improved. But on the day I needed it, it wasn't broken. It saved my life.
1: And since discharged from the ward, how yeah. has life changed? Uh the doors have opened up to uh, me
11: being able to use my coping mechanisms. I mean I'm calling you right now from my gym where I go every day, which which helps me cope i uh, I got called back to work on a contract basis um, things just slowly came around. Uh, but when I was in that dark place, uh, I didn't see any hope. In, I didn't see any future. I didn't, uh, there, was, there was nothing to grab onto. And the people in the basement of the health sciences gave me something to grab onto. They, they, they brought me, I, I, you hear this expression all the time, they brought me to the lights. But they showed me that there was, you know, There is a future, things will get better, things will improve, you just got to hold on. you just got to hold on.
1: How have your family and friends reacted to the fact that you needed that type of crisis lifeline given to you, thankfully by the good people in the basement of the Health Sciences Centre, about understanding who you are, where you were, where you are today, your coping mechanisms and how they can be a part of the positive portion of your life?
11: Most people actually are were were quite relieved to hear that I had reached out, and most people were very uh, sympathetic. Uh, in the early days of my diagnosis, I mean, I thought I, I was going to be judged, and and uh, you you were going to be considered, you know, the old classic words of crazy and and out of your mind. But everybody was very sympathetic. Um, in fact, a few people told me that they were glad that I had spoken out because they have experienced mental issues and struggles and hearing it from someone that they thought had it all together which most people thought I did um, I was I was suffering and uh, it was comforting to them
1: Talk about your continuity of care and access to long-term care. So do you see on a regular basis, whether it be a therapist, a counsellor, psychologist, psychiatrist, just describe what it's looked like for the long-term access to mental health care?
11: Well, after I left and was discharged uh, from the hospital, I continued to see my psychiatrist. Um, and the hospital put me on to a, um, a counsellor. Um, over um, it was sort of an online thing uh, in video um, sort of format and uh, I did that for about 8 weeks and those people helped me deal with a lot of anxiety that I had about going back out into uh, the real world shall we say and having to deal with my issues and um, my psychiatrist uh, stepped up my Number of visits that I would see him, and and everybody just I I ha- I have no complaints. Everybody stepped up when I needed it. Everyone stepped up, and and I I, I it, it kills me when I hear people that don't get the treatment that I got because I wonder like is is it was I just lucky or is the system truly broken down?
1: I think the case is it's just not the same for everybody and you know yeah, some peop- i agree you know some people have a champion in their corner which helps shoulder some of the burden some people are trying to go it alone some might be living in rural Newfoundland versus in these urban settings so I think there's you know it depends on who you are where you are as to how you yeah. think the system is working or not so uh, again f- more often than not once people get in the system whether it be for physical or mental health they get the compassionate professional care and treatment in bedside manner that they deserve but it's the outside looking in where people have angst waiting for their surgery, waiting for their diagnostic imaging, waiting for uh, an opportunity to see a psychiatrist. That's where we have to take every story case by case and after that try to break it down to a painting a clear picture of the system as opposed to saying and I was given a great warning by a man who I have tremendous respect for, Vince Withers at the Eating Disorder Foundation he told me be thoughtful in the way you speak about this because if you paint an endless picture of there is no help then all you do is give people uh, no no reason for hope which is
11: absolutely the last thing I want to do so
1: we talk about gaps but also every single time talk about the opportunities and the avenues to get some help because you can't paint that it's all is lost because that would be devastating and it's the very last thing that I would, would like to do sitting in this chair so I try to couch it as carefully as possible and I I know sometimes people hear it the way they do or and sometimes I might be very clumsy in the way I talk about it because it's live and my mind is going a million miles an hour but I'm I try to remind myself of that important message every time we talk about these issues
11: and you do a good job of it too Patty. it, it was just that when I heard um, it just it just struck me as someone who didn't quite know what they were talking about and didn't actually experience what goes on in that place and I wanted to those people who work on that floor to know that um they do great work and uh
1: they should be applauded i'm really glad you made time for the show keith i'm glad to hear you're doing well enjoy the rest of your workout stay in touch take care buddy you too man all the best bye-bye Bye bye. good call uh okay let's take a break for the newscast when we come back plenty of time to talk about a couple of key issues we're going to start with what's going on in the conditions inside her majesty's penitentiary today and then the procurement process for the construction to replace that dungeon by the lake don't go away
0: nutrition exercise keeping the cold at bay whatever keeps you feeling great the wellness and healthy lifestyle show on your vocm welcome back to
1: the show let's go to line number two good morning colleen you're on the air good morning patty how are you my darling doing okay uh, this morning thank you how are you
12: I'm good. I'm just to give you a heads up. I'm calling from uh, Hamilton, Ontario. Okay. Uh, my son called me this morning. And uh, he's, my son got a lot of mental health issues. He got depression. He got anxiety. He's ADD with ADHD with a chemical imbalance. Here, a couple of years ago, he found, he went down to see his dad, and he found his dad hanging. His father hung himself. Uh, a couple of years before that, his brother died. He dealt with that, trying to deal with it. Uh, he spent a bit of time at the Waterfront Hospital. Now he's down to the HMP because he's dealing with some charges. Now, they went in, and they actually took the young fella right off his medication. And I said, you know what? You're not doctors. You cannot go in and say, you're not getting your meds today, you know? And he loves to read. We sent him books for a reading from Indigo. Um he can't read, he can't focus, he can't sleep, he's he's going right out of his mind, he's after putting in request, after request, after request to see the psychiatrist. And he looks at him, tells him, Go back to his cell. You're mental. You don't need medication. You're just crazy. What well, what kind of a guard would say something like that to someone that's dealing with mental health?
1: It's a fair question. I have never understood, and apparently we've been told repeatedly, that a review of the approach that the doctor, and I don't know if it remains being Dr. Craig at HMP, but the whole concept of taking someone off their prescribed medication for their mental illness upon being incarcerated, I have never understood it. Because what happens? They just, symptoms worsen when they get out. They're worse than when they went in. And then it's reintegrating to their medicine. It's just, I can never wrap my mind around how, that has been deemed a peer-reviewed, appropriate approach. I
0: don't get it.
12: No, because then then young fellas are put on this medication for a reason. I'm on medication myself for for depression because where my son passed away. And uh, if I stop one of them meds, I can cause more damage to myself than anything, like the doctor said. do not ever stop your medication without advising your doctor first. And here they are down there taking the meds from young fellas that are dealing with mental health. I, I think it's ridiculous. Them guards are not doctors. They're not psychiatrists. They're not physicians. They're not qualified to take someone off their meds. <sighs>
1: Yeah, no, I, I guess it would have been a doctor that took the uh, the prisoner off of the meds initially. But you know, for the guards, look, I get it; it's a tough job, and uh, absolutely yeah. it is, and it's a pretty dangerous yeah. situation, possibly. But yeah. you also have to realize that the individual could be struggling with things that you can't see, and mental okay. illness might be one of them. If we listen to folks who work in the courthouse, for instance, they'll yeah. tell you that somewhere in the neighborhood of the uh, people they see going through the turnstile of the court the courtrooms are somewhere in the neighborhood of. 80% dealing with an addiction or a mental health issue. There's, I think, legit questions as to how it's uh, reasonable that even some of the folks who are seriously mentally ill are incarcerated in a setting like HMP. There is no opportunity to manage symptoms. There's no opportunity for recovery. It no. just, there's there's something patently wrong with the setup.
12: Now, I understand where the guards are coming from, yes. But I mean, do they realize when they take these inmates off their medication, do they realize they're putting their guards at risk?
1: It's a fair observation, yep.
12: You know what I'm saying? One of them can flip right out and end up taking the guard's lift. Why? Because he wasn't on his medication.
1: It's possible, uh, for sure. How likely, I don't know. How long does your son have in front of him with uh, his stay at Her Majesty's?
12: He is going to be there. He's not even shed on the charges, so he could be there for another year yet until he
1: takes. Well, you know, the conditions inside, and I'll look, here's what happens every time, Colleen. We talk about her matches, and then I'll get the same emails, and people, feel free to send them, saying it's not supposed to be the Ritz-Carlton and all the rest of it. No, no. but it's not supposed to be somewhere where we can have a virtual guarantee for some people they get out worse than when they went in. That's not no. in anyone's best interest, regardless if you've ever had a brush with the law or anything else under the sun. No, no.
12: But he's had a real rough time down there. I mean, dealing with his father's death, his brother's death. No family down there because we're in Hamilton. And, I mean, he's only 30 years old. And his brother was 30 when he passed away. Actually, I had a conversation with you on uh, 2015 when uh, I called down to see what was going on with my son's body. And... He told me he's dead anyway, and he chuckled. Remember that one?
1: I think I might remember something about that. And again.
12: Apology for that about three months later.
1: And you know, once again, let, just let me get out in front of some of the obvious reaction that's coming, is when we talk about what's happened in people's lives, 99% of the time it's not offered as an excuse, but we have to understand how people arrive at a moment in their life where they commit a crime that sees them behind bars. So yeah. it's not excusing anyone's behavior, and when you yeah. break the law, you have to pay the price, that's just how the world works, and so it should. But yeah. understanding who someone is, and how they've arrived at, at that place in their life, it's it's supposed to be part of the conversation It's not the be all and the end all It's not offering an excuse or a free pass It's just the obvious part of the conversation
12: Yeah, I mean it's bad enough They're locked up on that unit they're not, They are don't get outside very often The TV has been gone off the unit Now for the last two weeks I mean what do they expect people to do And then they're taking them off their medication that, That's crazy it, it is, it's crazy I don't
4: understand this
1: I appreciate the call Colleen hope you're doing okay yes you too take care Great, Paddy. Right. Bye-bye. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, and now the next part of the conversation regarding Her Majesty's Penitentiary is the replacement. Some questions brought forward on the House of Assembly yesterday from the opposition critic. That's the PC member for Fairland. That's Loyola O'Driscoll. Loyola, you're on the air. Good morning, Paddy. How are you this morning? Not too bad, I suppose. You?
13: Good, for, good, sir.
1: So, right off the bat, I don't know if you're going to disclose your source, but where are you getting the numbers you're dealing with regarding the price tag for the penitentiary blue to about a half a billion dollars? Well,
13: it's just in the, you know, The industry sources are coming back and telling us that the same ones that came back are going to say that, you know, saying that, you know, when they were doing the bidding that they're, you know, they're going to drop out and, you know, and, uh, you know, they're just just not uh, there's not something that they're going to be involved in. So, you know, same same sources.
1: So are are they offering reasons as to why two of the three bidders dropped out? Is nope. it because they thought that, you know, there's long been the conversation about government contracts, and when we end up with a sole source, it gives people immediate pause for concern for the obvious reasons. So if companies bid and think, well, oh, I recognize the name of this bidder, and I'm not just talking about this contract either. Oh, I recognize this company. They're getting it for sure. I'm not going to waste my time. I'm monitoring my energy and continuing on forward. Is that some of the thought given to this?
13: I'm going to say it is, Paddy. You know, uh when, when you discuss it, so if you were looking to go on a bid and uh, you know you bid on some of these and continues to be uh, you know the, the same uh, people getting the tenders, then if you're going to go bid on a contract as big as this, you're going to spend millions of dollars, I would think, to get this ready. So if they think that they're not going to go spend some of their good-earned money and to do a bid on it, knowing that they're going to be unsuccessful, then I guess they decide that they're not going to do it. You know, so that's uh, you know some of the thoughts. I mean, if you were going to buy a car, for an example, you would shop around and get the best price. But if you're only going to get one price, and people know you're only going to get one price, and obviously the price has gone up. And we, and we think that and when this came out first, the member from CBS, Barry Fetten, who did a great job in disclosing this and uh, getting into it as well, You know, uh, he, he was concerned for it, and the industry is concerned, and you know something that uh, we're calling for to be retendered. tendered that's, that's what we're saying.
1: So initially, just so we give some numbers for context, and no doubt if something that was first broached in 2019, the price tag is obviously going to change because the price tag on everything has changed. So the government of the day did set aside back in 2019. I believe the number was 200 million dollars for 200 this. 200 million, yeah,
13: 200 million. Then the project jumped to 325, is what they, you know, what they came out with. And sources are saying it's a, uh, you know, 500 to 520 million. It's about 60 or 65 percent, you know, higher. So you know, certainly something that the government should go back and look at. You know, probably re-tender it. If you were, if you were building your own home, you know, and you got uh, one price, and you say, well, I gotta have a, you know, look around to see what I can do, and get a better price and that's just an easy example to show but you know if you're looking for your own home uh, to do it you would, you would certainly shop around or, or go back and start again you know that's certainly something they should look at for sure
1: yeah and nor do I know if government has accepted the design uh, put forward by the the uh, company you know because parameters change and there's some fairness in so recognising that if parameters change price changes if inflation has had an impact sure but it doesn't feel like $200 million is all of a sudden 520 simply based on those two factors, unless there's whopping big changes in engineering and design. So,
13: For sure, Patty. I mean, I've asked questions two days in the house, two days in a row, and they've yet to come back and answer the question, really. You know, if there's something there, then, yeah, bring it back and let's maybe retender tender That's certainly something they should look at or give us the answers to the questions that we're asking, for sure.
1: Have they said straight up no to retendering?
13: No, they haven't. No. No, they haven't said that. Uh, no, they wouldn't retender. But, you know, it's probably a consideration when we got in estimates or something. He didn't say consider it, but, uh, you know, they're looking at all options.
1: Yeah, and I think governments, I mean, maybe quietly has thought that their $200 million in 2019, the affordability might be in the neighborhood of 300 325 not 520 because there's a long, long way from 325 oh, to 520
13: sure. For sure. And that's, and that's the reason we ask the questions. You know, that's uh, if the sources are out there telling us that, then, you know, we've got to raise that concern. That's our job to Do that, then we're looking after taxpayers' money, and uh, you know we're certainly trying our best to, And we know we're just asking questions on it, and we'd love to see some answers.
1: Uh, Well, I think we all need answers. So, how do you incorporate the thought that it seems unlikely that prices are going to come back to earth very quickly, and for some materials maybe not at all? How do you factor in the possibility that going back to tender might even increase the price?
13: Well, it it may increase the price, but at least we go back, we get another look at it, and if they give us, if they give one price in a back and it's where, where it stands out and at least we went back and looked at it or if we could get a couple of more bidders to enter into it then maybe that'll change the scope how it looks but until you do that process we don't know that but they, you know that's something that I think they should look at for sure. You know this, there's no doubt about it. This building is certainly needed. We know we need this building but let's make it right. Let's not start it then two years down then delay it again. Let's let's get get it right the first time and that's, that's what we're saying.
1: What's the party your party think about what seems to be all the rage is the private-public partnership here. Years ago, the three P's were kind of frowned upon. And, you know, inside the world, whether it be criminal justice or health care, people thought, mm, not so sure about this. But I don't hear much about it any further. I mean, look at the two 60-bed long-term care facilities out on Central. They went horribly off the rails. And that's in the envelope of P3. What do you guys make of that? And do you understand what the math looks like in five-year increments? You know, there's going to be some reduced pain on uh, taxpayers early on in the project but then do we have a real careful understanding of what it looks like 30 years down the road
13: well you know patty it's something again when they start to look at these projects obviously there's things that throw them off track you know you you dealt with covid along the way then prices increase so it's something that you know we've been keeping an eye on for sure and you know trying to get her you know trying to get a good look at it to make sure and and we're responsible as the opposition to make them accountable to make sure these projects are online and and stay within their
1: value There was a, I think, an unnecessary barb. Well, there's lots of unnecessary barbs being flicked around a question period. But the fact that you don't have a permanent leader, um, I'm not going to get you to respond to that necessarily, but my thoughts have been, and I don't know where your party's head is or your supporters or advisors, I've got a distinct feeling there's an election call in the offing. Is that something you feel as well? And if so, is your party, without a permanent leader installed, uh, something that you're ready for?
13: Well, we're certainly uh, gearing up for it. I mean, uh, it closes at the end of May, but, uh, you know, it's not something I think the people in the province need right now is an election. There's no question about that. I mean, we went through that, and, uh, you know, they they made these legislation uh, for four years, so they should honour that. You know that's the way that works. I mean, why break all those rules? Are you going to put in legislation? Why break them all the time? Let's let's follow the legislation that's put in there and it's supposed to be four years, let it be four years. Yeah,
1: yeah. the fixed election date has a lot of uh, vagaries and loopholes available to parties. Yeah, it certainly do. Yeah. Yeah, it's not as tight as it needs to be. No. Uh, any other subject you would like to broach this morning, Loyola?
13: Yeah, Petty, I was uh, and I was in Estimate yesterday morning as well, and uh, you know I hear some conversation on the Gushu Highway, and uh, you know they made an announcement yesterday, and and the questions again were when, when will see some work been done. So, you know, after asking questions, they came back and said, uh, you know, we've got to go back to an RFP for design on that part of the highway. Well, my question then was, when this road was designed, didn't you have all that done? So now we're going to go back with another proposal for an RFP for the continuation of the road and where it's going to end up to over on Brookfield Road or join into the Robert E. Howlett. Where Where is it to? Like, okay, you're you're saying you're making an announcement for the road today, you you think, okay, we're going to see construction on that this year. I mean, you've got a part of a road over there and an overpass on. You would think that would be done. No, they're going back for a design. So, you know, that's two or three years down the road by the time they get that done. And then they, once they get the design done, then they're going to, you know, it's all going to be broken out in different components, who's going to do what and what's going to be bid on. So, you know, they make making an announcement to say that the Gushu Highway is going to be done and we're going to see it this year. I don't see it, not from the questions that I'm asking, and that's, that's basically what you know, we've been asking them.
1: Well, I mean, I can't remember every single detail from what I read or learned in 2006, but I'm pretty sure there were parameters for the entirety of the Team Guzhu Highway offered initially and broken out into phases, as we've seen, and it's been a snail's pace, to say the very least. Uh, just quickly, before I let you go, is there pressure being put on the government, and the Premier in particular, Try to find a resolution to this snow crab standoff. I'm really at a loss to as what people actually think the governing party or the premier himself should or could do on this front. The union are calling for it. I think there's some uh, tremors coming from your party that something needs to be done. Like what?
13: I, I, my thought on that is, funny, I come from a district that got a high fishing, fishing volume, and I think that they have to get the players back into one room to talk. That's my, that's my thought on it. How that works, you know, how they, once you get in there and, you know, you can talk and text and email, but get them into one room. Let's see how we can get this resolved because it's very important for the whole district and the whole of the province. To get this going, it's very important. And a lot of stores and venues and restaurants are feeling this pinch. I mean, absolutely. I mean, there's people without unemployment. So I think that the on the Premier to get these people back to the table and let's get them into one room. That's my thought on it.
1: How does that work, realistically? So, you know, because I don't think anybody as an elected official is in a position where they can demand anything like that. So how does encouraging look? Because I think both sides want to see this snow crab fishery executed. They just have different ideas on how and for how much
13: oh yeah there's no there's no question on that patty we'd love to see that happen i mean at least let's get that a try that's that's my thought on it and see what we can make the, you know come out of it that's that's the that's the whole premise of it let's see if we can get that happen at the least
1: appreciate the time thanks Loyola. thank you appreciate it Patty. have a take good day care. you too Loyola odriscoll is the pc member for fairland uh let's take a break uh, when we come back the topic is extraordinarily and extremely and up ultimately up to you don't go away welcome back to the show let's go to line number one Shirley, you're on the air Oh, hi, Patty. Good morning. How are you? Very well, thank you. How are you?
3: Oh, I'm fine. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I'm just wondering, the stutter tourists were supposed to be taken off as of April 30th, I think. Is there any extension on that? Would you know?
1: Not that I'm aware of.
3: No. No. no, Okay, then, because I didn't know where else to turn to find out. But... (laughs) If you don't know anything, I guess that's all
1: I can do. Well, generally speaking, studded tire season is November 1st to April 30th. There has yep. been extensions in the past, but I'm not aware of any at this moment in time. And generally, it kind of coincides with the municipalities easing up some of their winter parking restrictions or very close to. Yeah. So I have very not nice. heard of an extension.
3: Okay, that's fine. Thank you very much, Patty. No problem.
1: Have a good day. You too. Bye. Bye. Take care. Bye bye. Uh, Studded tyres are an interesting beast, and I know thankfully we're through the season where studded tyres have any need for any motorist. And people who like their studded tyres, that's it. They want to have studs on during the winter, no matter what. There are lots of conversations about what studded tyres mean to the road and what conditions are actually best suited to a starter tire. Like, you know, when we teach people how to drive, and it's, uh, give yourself three seconds, right? Three seconds of stopping time behind the car that you're trailing. And of course, if you're on the drive pavement with a studded tire, you probably need more stopping time than that. You know, there's reports of, uh, there's all kinds of data out there about what it means for the road and stopping times, and what conditions are most appropriate for studs. And I guarantee you there's still people with studs on. Uh, coming out of Shoppers Drug Mart yesterday, you didn't have to turn your head to see, but all you could do was hear. The fact that the car coming in from McDonald Drive, absolutely still had its studs on the tires eh, hey you know they'll take their chances with getting a ticket for their removal but i do find it fascinating about what these studs mean to the roads themselves especially if it starts to warm up you know throughout the frigid winter with frost in the ground i don't know how much of an impact it has but on the early part of the season where some people they've got a, an appointment booked november 1 the studs are going on if it's not that cold and of course the efficiency of a studded tire and or a winter tire has a direct relationship with the ambient temperature but when it starts to warm up and the studs are still on you know full well they're digging into the pavement It just stands to reason. You got little metal knobs in contact and taking away some of the point of contact from rubber to be replaced with steel stud. You know, it has some impact on what it means for the road work. If I remember correctly, and uh, you set me straight, Mayor Acre, if you're listening and I'm wrong. I think it was a number of years ago. There was a bunch of municipalities were promoting the banning of studded tires in their communities. It got shot down at the municipalities of Newfoundland and Labrador, but I'm pretty sure Mount Pearl was one of them. Uh, talking about the potential ability to ban them. Now, I'm not suggesting that we need to ban the studded tires because, as I said, some people swear by them. It's, that's just it and sometimes peace of mind and comfortable with what's under your vehicle as you try to safely navigate the roads the highways and byways who am I to tell you you're wrong but I do think that we've some people make decisions simply in what they feel might be best as opposed to what is and then it depends on what part of the province you're in the type of winter we experience around here is vastly different than what you might experience on the west coast of the island and certainly vastly different than what might be experienced in Labrador itself so yeah some of I guess is regional. Some is be, uh, based on personal preference. But if you want to talk about studded tires, <laughs> we can do that after the news. Quick check-in on the Twitter feed. We're VOSM open line. Follow us there. There's, it's hard for me to tell what one call or, or another will have so far as impact goes, but when we have those folks like Mike Daw sharing his experience as a 35-year-old man living with a cancer diagnosis and the screening of the documentary Tonight at the Center, I knew we were going to get a lot of reaction to that, and of course we did. Keith talked about the fact that the psych ward uh, saved his life, regardless of its location in the hospital, what have you, and lots of people chiming in on that. So... Those are personal stories that I guess we're all lucky enough that people are willing to share because putting a face to the issue, putting a face to the name does go a a long way versus here's the numbers of dollars we're talking about in this policy and here's what the government thinks it will mean versus what it really means and the impact it has on the ground with individuals and their families. Those are the types of stories that get the big reaction. And let's see if we can tell a few more of those. Or on top of that, tell me some
0: good news right after this newscast. Don't go away. Your VOCM Mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Miles, you're on the air.
1: Good morning, Patty. Morning. I was wondering uh, if you want to chat a little bit about
14: traffic planning and the legitimacy of how the provincial government picks its highways that it decides to build.
1: Sure. Where do you want to start? so I want to talk about Team Guju. Um,
14: I am a City of St. John's resident. Um, I live here, and you know, I know many people live around the city. But when you look at the legitimacy of how Transportation Works analyzes the roads they build, there is no traffic analysis done. They don't actually look at vehicles per hour, people per hour. They're doing these based on just feel-good kind of opinions. And with something like Team Guju Phase 3, you're looking at an approximate budget of 49 to $60 million, depending on the configuration of the Route 2 interchange by the Goulds. That's a large amount of money, and you got to ask, like, the provincial government should pro- be providing mathematics behind why. Why would they build this connection? So when you try to do vehicle movement calculations across trying to figure out who would use this road, where it goes, where they're going, um, you don't really get a lot of benefit out of this large cost. You're only saving on maximum about four minutes. That's not a lot of time savings. It'd be different if this was a highway between, say, the Conagray Peninsula and the Burham Peninsula overland. That would save a lot of time. Let's say three hours. That'd be great. But the provincial government wants to spend a large amount of money building a divided highway for what's probably only going to have maybe 1,000 vehicles per hour at a highway capacity of 3,600. So there's things like how come there's no options of, hey, let's just do a two-lane highway, continue it from the bridge at Topsil Road, roundabout termination on Brookfield, make Brookfield Road from that intersection west uh, west towards Mount Pearl three-lane with your separate lane in the middle for left-turn traffic, alleviating a lot of the slowdowns. And then just continue to Mount Pearl and finish it. In terms of traffic capacity and time saved, that would only cost about $7 million to do versus around, again, 49 to 60 And it would have a vehicle rate capacity matching the actual road. You'd, you'd get that road from right now around 1,400 vehicles per hour up to around 2,000 vehicles per hour without building a divider highway. Yes, there will be the occasional delay of a combine harvester or a tractor driving around. But is that worth 40, 50 million more dollars? I don't really think so.
1: Where are you getting your uh, traffic flow volume numbers?
14: So these are these are normal Canadian standard numbers. Uh, that'll be in your the Traffic Authority of Canada has capacities per road. And when you look at the Canadian census data, the 2021 census data has every local municipality. You look at Fairyland, Babels, Mount Pearl, Paradise. You can look at all of them. You can see commuters who leave. The the hard numbers are a little harder to look without actual traffic gauge data, which is a little more private, and we only really have, from my knowledge, two public traffic tracking units. But you can get rough numbers on where people are going. Now, as for traffic simulations, you would run those in ArcGIS or a GIS simulation program, and you'd have your links and nodes. You have your rough population as little points on the map. And then you can run ice maps, and these are a type of way you'd mathematically calculate the options people would drive and the impacts those would have. So there's lots of different pieces of software you can use to do these kinds of simulations. I play around with this. I dabble in it. I sometimes do it professionally. But I'm always interested in this because, again, you know, when the provincial government proposes a highway, they don't ever provide the mathematics behind it. There are no traffic studies.
1: Yeah, we it do. Sure so, like the city has entertained some when, you know, talk about uh, subdivisions and kitty bitty and those types of very regional, localized uh, traffic issues. These the next couple of questions are based out of ignorance. So hopefully you can help me fill in the blanks when they do the numbers that you've seen on the document that you referred to and some software uh, that can be utilized. Does it also factor in the, not only the number of cars that would be used by residents of the city, but just as the city as the hub of employment for so many communities surrounding it, including the Southern Shore, and that access that would be provided with this. So does it factor in that level of congestion, that traffic flow, and the fact that many people up in that part of the province may indeed be traveling a lot to the, to the city of St. John's, not only to work, but to shop and for every other amenity?
14: No, I wish it did. I wish they provide any mathematics. So, this is what I was playing around with the last day since the announcement. And when you look at the total population of basically south of the Goulds, you're talking, you know, all the communities down there, Fairyland, et cetera, coming up the shore, there's not even 7,000 people. So, that's the size of Tor Bay. And when you look at traffic flows and where those people are going, you look at what's called like point of weight. So, for example, the point of weight of St. John's is going to be the downtown core around Pippi Industrial, Donovan Industrial, and then you have the Health Science, Munn Regional Area, and then the College of North Atlantic and the uh, um, Confederation Building. Those are our big dance points of of where people end up commuting to. And when you try to say how many people leave the Southern Shore and head north up by the Goulds bypass, where are they going? And as of right now, their options are to take the Outer Ring Road and head head west towards Mount Pearl, take the Outer Ring Road in. They can also go through the downtown core and cut through the middle of, you know, Allendale Road, things like this. Uh, or if the Team usual Highway paid, Phase 3 was built, they could take that route. They can also go up through for Peel Road. They can also go through Park Avenue. All of those four options are about the same time. So when you add Team Guju Phase 3, it's only saving about three or four minutes. And that's only for around, like, without knowing hard traffic data of where these people are going. Census does not say where you are heading, like, you know, in a census, uh, when you get your survey, it would be something like, I live in St. John's, I commute to St. John's. Great. They don't know what roads I drive on. They don't care. CBS is the same thing. Where do you commute? To St. John's, to CBS. That's all they really look at. So unless you get traffic, actual meters to see the flow of traffic. But there's another interesting t- two thing, uh, Patty, which with highway design, traffic flow simulations, most every piece of software is very, very, very bad at doing anything other than calculating cars. They don't factor in public transit. Even don't factor in HOV lanes. So most of software I've played around with, yeah, uh, you will be running one person per car, which is about one vehicle per se- uh, per two seconds is a normal flow rate. So a single lane at 100 kilometers an hour is around 1,800 vehicles per per hour. But if those were an HOV lane, the people per hour goes from 1,800 to nearly 8,000. <laughs> so. There's things like, should Team Kuju Highway Phase 3 be an HOV-only two-lane road? That's a totally valid option. And again, for $8 million, you've got a capacity that's higher than the Outer Ring Road and Pitch Memorial Drive combined. But these things are not what the provincial government does. It's not what the city of St. John's does. It's not what most governments do. Like the Newfoundland government, good for what it is, I suppose. I'm, I'm indifferent. They do not do traffic simulations. They do not do traffic studies. All these twinnings across the province adding maybe 30 kilometers of twin highways, it's feel-good, and it's slightly safer. But we're essentially building a 10-meter diameter pipe for a one-meter flow of traffic. (laughs) You know, it doesn't really make a lot of sense from an engineering standpoint. From a political standpoint, it makes an immeasurable amount of sense. They're going to win a lot of votes. They're going to get a lot of jobs, and that's good. There's other things we can build jobs on. We could be building climate-resilient highways, connecting, for example, leaving Millertown and going overland and connecting to the Virgil Highway. That road already exists. It's only 110 kilometers. We need to resurface it, maybe for 40, 50 million dollars. We now have a 40-minute cutoff on the travel time from Port to St. John's. Why isn't that an option? Like Team Gujo Phase Three isn't needed. <laughs> St. John's doesn't need more highway capacity.
1: Fair enough. And when it comes to the twinning of highways, I don't know how you put a price tag or a scientific approach or a a software simulation or any other traffic volume on the ground uh, evaluation when we talk about safety. And that's one of the first things I said is, look, I feel vastly different. And i think I'm a pretty good driver and I'm pretty aware and I try not to be distracted when I drive but there is a distinct different (laughs) feeling about being on a single lane highway versus a twin highway and we have seen a ton of collisions resulting in serious injury and death on our provinces highways and some of the volume issues were like extending beyond Whitburn to Little Bay East I can see the rationale there in between Grand Falls Windsor and Bishop's Falls I can see it has there been enough evaluation done to justify the price tag if I hear you correctly The answer is quite clearly no. What does on-the-ground traffic flow assessments look like? Is it simply standing there with a stopwatch over a certain course of the run of a day, rush hour included, to evaluate traffic flow, or is it all simulation and we just trust the data as the inputs by humans who are not standing along the side of the road?
14: So the two in St. John's Metro that are publicly available in terms of knowing where they are Uh, There's Outer Ring Road between Paradise and Thorburn Road. Everyone thinks it's a speed camera. It is not, It's it's a traffic measuring device. There's also one out by CBS as well. They look, they're large boxy structures. They essentially are measuring traffic crossing a certain area usually with an ultrasonic sensor, sometimes with a laser, it doesn't really matter, Uh, those are going to be just physically tracking brakes, and they see a vehicle go by, they track it, they track it. If it's a solid wall of cars, it doesn't know. There has to be brakes between traffic, but there's always... People people tailgate, but they don't tailgate that close. (laughs) But when you look at, uh, you know, the efficacy, yes, driving on a divided highway is extremely safe for head-on collisions. It does not impact our most lethal thing, which is drunk drivers, uh, distracted drivers falling asleep and moose divided highway makes no difference on that so it's again one of those things it's like oh what's our risk assessment humans were bad at risk assessment, and head-on front collisions are much more easily abated by heavily traffic regulation with speed cameras you guys just had on the news they're starting to push it out you know hill climb lanes are fine but when you look at something like the veterans highway to carboneer Almost all of those accidents have been someone passing recklessly, heading on into another vehicle. Yep. That's nothing to do with the highway engineering. That's to do about bad, angry drivers.
1: <laughs> How do you factor in? Things like if we're talking about Team Gujou and the real growth communities, and this is not a, uh, a swat at any other community that I don't mention, but Paradise, CBS, Mount Pearl, Southern Shore, St. John's will make up the vast majority of the growth of the population of this province over the course of the ne- next decade. How do you factor yep. that into investment in road work? Because it will cost less to do it today than it will tomorrow
14: hundred percent. And, you know, the, the factors of mathematics for how we estimate roads are all at a whack since COVID. You know, a lot of labor costs has gone up 20, 30 percent. It's making estimating engineering projects very difficult. <laughs> but in terms of the towns, um, you know, you, what I'd be looking at is the tax revenue per area of the municipality. And quite frankly, CBS and, and Paradise are offensively low. They they those communities only function because they keep developing. When Mount Pearl hits its wall in another three or four years and runs out of space, Mount Pearl will have to increase taxes. They do not bring enough tax per resident. St. John sits around $3,300 uh, per resident. Mount Pearl is around $2,800. drops down to 1600 CBS is $1,400 per resident. They do not have the money. What they need to do is urbanize. They need to start building large apartments, high-rises. They need to start putting in townhouses, getting more houses in to- towards the local area. So, yes, CBS and Paradise will grow, but instead of us putting $1.8 billion into fixing roads, which could be alleviated by, for example, lowering axle load on transport vehicles uh, and, for example, um, removing studded tires. We talked about that earlier. Studded tires, big issue with with our freeze thaw cycles on the East Coast. But, you know, when you look at all all those factors put together, we need to start looking at how we urbanize our area and how we move people, and cars are the least efficient. (laughs) You know, provincial government – and City St. John's have agreed there's a climate emergency, yet they do nothing to address it. And and honestly, you know, I know people in, Saint, in CBS who are single mothers with two children. Half their budget is their car and gas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why is there no express bus? You know, City St. John or you know, this fifty million dollars allotted up to three hundred and six for these large twinnings and expansions and hill climb lanes by Port of That could fund almost entirely expanding our private rural bus system into a private and public express bus system where it's not just DRL. There's no reason someone from Trinity shouldn't be able to get a bus into St. John's every day. <laughs> so that's yeah. an easier way to move people. And like CBS should have an express bus. Like they don't spend any money on their public transit. And is that a sexy policy? No, not even close, but it is necessary.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, that's a cost-sharing issue that I think uh, drives that bus um, more sure. <laughs> more than anything else. Uh, Miles, really appreciate the info and the perspective this morning. Yeah. Interesting stuff. All right. Thank you, honey. Thank sure. you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. There you go. That was pretty good. You know, evaluating why and where you spend absolutely should be part of it. Break time, when we come back, Ron is there to talk about property tax. Everybody's favorite. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Ron. You're on the air.
10: Uh, good morning, Patty. Uh, I'm a first time caller. Welcome. Yeah, uh, Patty, uh, I'm calling about the, the property tax. I'm a, a living in community, a community which is paying a property tax. The community next to me are not paying any property tax at all. So road construction and uh, uh, lights on the poles and plowing in the winter and uh, things like this. Uh, and uh, I think this, th- the government should either legislate these people that pay a property tax. They're trying to raise money. Uh, they come up with a sugar tax, which I think was ludicrous. I don't know why he did that. And uh, uh, so you know money is uh, is important and the government needs money to do these things so why can't they get, uh, uh, to get other people who are in communities who are not paying property tax to pay a property tax the community next to me has two major businesses in that community are not paying 5 cents property tax so uh, what's up with that and I, I you know that really bugs me
1: well, I mean, I, I suppose you're talking about a community alongside that is a local service district, as opposed to an incorporated municipality. So, yep. one thing that gets lost in the conversation is that if I'm a resident of an LSD, I don't want to pay more taxes and not get any more services or amenities. I understand that thought, but what we don't factor in is that they will very likely do some shopping, do some business, or travel through communities close by who are paying property taxes. So, they don't factor that into the conversation. And what you're basically talking about there is what could have been addressed through some form of regionalization or collaboration or cooperation whatever term people want to put on it because yeah. you're a hundred percent right I might not get any more services in exactly where I live but I might help shoulder the burden for the costs associated with the community right next door that I go to to work that I go to the shop that I go to to visit my buddies or whatever the case may be or I go to play darts we don't ever factor that in and nobody wants to have that part of the conversation but it belongs somewhere in it
10: that's true, yes. Uh, okay, well, yeah. Well, I got another thing to, to bring up now. Okay. It's a little bit different. Uh, Newfoundland, uh, Boisies Bay, has the highest nickel in the world. We process it here in uh, Long Harbor. Uh, why don't Newfoundland build a battery plant and have put people to work? And could you're not, you're not paying for nickel, well, I, I, I assume or not, but to, to make these batteries. And we have the other resources that uh, go in the batteries. So, uh, you know, I think our government are a little bit slow on, on that. Because, I mean, Thompson, Ontario, I think, is where they're going to build this new battery plant. I'm not too sure on that. I mean, where are they going to get their nickel uh, from? I hope they're going to get it from Boise Bay.
1: Yeah, well, they do a lot of processing in Thompson, Manitoba, and Sudbury in Ontario. And, in fact, every spoonful of nickel that we sent out when with construction at Long Harbor was taking place is supposed to come back in. You make a good point, but I think if we look, stand back and look at what it would take to incentivize a company to build a plant, because we don't want the government building a plant because we're not really very good at those types of things as governments. So in St. Thomas, Ontario, Volkswagen is yep. going to spend $7 billion of their money to build a plant, which will employ some 3,000 3, people. The governments mm-hmm. of Canada didn't give them any money, but they're cutting them uh, a tax relief that will add up to somewhere in the neighborhood of $13 billion based on hitting incentives mm-hmm. if the plant is as successful as Volkswagen thinks it will be. Now, ultimately, mm-hmm. in this country, global supply chain issues were, are going to be critically important to address. We saw what it meant to cost a living. We saw what it meant when they were interrupted regarding uh, inflationary rates. And if we're the only democratic country on the face of the earth with every single essential critical mineral for batteries, for your electric vehicle, for your laptop, for your cell phone, capturing that market more than just extracting it, sending it away, and then buying it back, that makes all the sense in the world to me.
10: Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, I'm sure that if they get it, if our premier phone, Elon Musk, <laughs> you might get a few dollars from him if uh, he wanted to build a brand new
1: yeah now we do have an agreement up at valet with a company that that from switzerland i believe that does build the bulk of the batteries for tesla to buy the minerals from uh labrador mines so that's i begin this that's the start of the conversation there's a economic massive economic upside to the mining industry here and of course it comes with environmental concerns no one dismisses or doesn't acknowledge that but on the economic front we really are sitting on a treasure trove of minerals that are in high demand.
10: Yes, that's true. Well, you know, I I appreciate it, Patty, and uh, uh, i got nothing else to say on that subject, and uh, you have a good day. I
1: appreciate the time. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, a couple of interesting points there, and you're right. If I live in a local service district, I don't want to pay more, not get anything extra. Like, who thinks like that? Nobody wants to do anything of the sort. But factoring in some of the amenities and communities close by that you will indeed avail of is... I think should be at least part of the conversation, not the be-all and end-all, but certainly something that belongs in it. At what priority or where it uh, falls in the hierarchy of important matters, I'll leave that up to you. I'm getting a question here from an email, or I will reply uh, to email, but maybe this person is still listening, and heard me say yesterday that I found a doctor. And I did. And they go on to say, I don't suppose she's taking any new patients. My doctor works at one of the collaborative care clinics, and I think all of their patients come through uh, the Patient Connect system. So if you're still looking for a family doctor and you've not taken the time to register with Patient Connect... You're simply going to be waiting for a doctor through their own clinic accord to bring on new patients. So it's Patient Connect, and I will indeed reply to that email. All right, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, all of the callers, listeners, emailers, tweeters. You're all right. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.